I'm Doug Jones, and you have discovered Beyond Trek Podcast. A red alert. So we're going to do season three recap for Star Trek Discovery. Boy, what a season this was, right? Uh, well, let's start our in introductions on this fine day. I'm Big J here with uh, who's the guy with the Guardian of Forever behind him? That is Renzo, the uh, fan turned co-host. Ah, Renzo. And I'm Dag, and uh, we say this all the time, but we're going to go over all things season three here. So uh, buckle up, and uh, do we do the spoiler alert now? Yeah, let's let's make sure everyone knows that when they're listening to a Star Trek Discovery season three recap, that there might, just might, be spoilers. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Just, just a little bit. Statistically. <laughs> you know, we're I, known I, for it we are we are known for it. well not only spoiling discovery or the episode we're reviewing but we may throw in some stuff that might be spoilers from other series just depends on what we're talking about or what we're relating to and we are the spoilers of forever you might even spoil tv shows you've never even heard of like <laughs> oh, like yeah. night rider oh my god night rider that takes me back didn't I am so glad that I I shaved for this. Like I wasn't sure we were gonna do it this morning. So were, I, you, were you growing? Were you growing the fro out? You talked about <laughs> yeah, right. You know, not not with the bald spot I got. So I had to put on some fresh turtle wax. Does it look look nice and shiny? And uh, it's a very that. matte finish. <laughs> I never. Heard yeah, that. I was gonna go with it's pretty glossy. I've got a. Yeah, I do kind of look like a matte finish. Okay. Really? Yeah, there's really some reflection there. There's some Maybe reflection a little bit. There. It's there's hard not to bit. it's hard not to have reflection with a dome like this. I've been I've been painting a uh a Voyager era pad. Mm -hmm. So it came as three sheets of like black acrylic and you have to sand the acrylic to get rid of the gloss on this on the acrylic and also provide like a grab a, a grab for the paint. And then two of the the top and the bottom get sprayed this matte gunmetal finish and the middle one gets sprayed this matte black oh. and so the way i see matte m-a-t-t-e is it's it can have like a reflection and like a nice little luster but it's not going to be like shiny like a bar of gold oh yeah so want to jump right into this yeah what are we doing i forgot <laughs> discovery season three the season where we literally boldly went where no one had ever gone before even voyager was 100 years too late to the party oh that's right that's right they they were well there wasn't a whole lot that we had seen in trek beyond the 32nd century just little bits here and there and yeah, various we, episodes I think the furthest forward we had come was the EMH backup in that Living one witness. episode. Thank you. Love Living that. Witness. And um, I think also when Archer was thrust into the future by Daniels, and that was around the 30th century or so. I mean, that was less J? far. Yeah, that was less far. That was 26. No, century. that was like 2930, but it was still 100, 200 years ago. Right. So. It's all good, you know, and we uh, we literally began this episode with a crash landing, um, you know, books in a fight with somebody and then suddenly 
Michael comes out of the wormhole, crashes into Bookship, and does a hot dive into the planet. She no does not use the crosswalk. Perfect 10. <laughs> Good form. Um, man, there were a lot of arcs this season that I felt like kicked off and hopefully we'll get more of in the next season right kicked off and then we're kind of abandoned it felt like and then some arcs that came full circle um so do you guys have any like character moments where like at the beginning something cool happened that carried through any lost arcs that you know raiders of the lost arcs wow why did i do that to myself <laughs> um but yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very character focused at the beginning of this. So uh, do you want to kick off there and talk about arcs that fulfilled you, arcs that didn't fulfill you, and arcs that are left open for the next season? You forget my thoughts together. You want to get, ah, oh, damn. No, 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 it's cool. gonna, I thought you were going to go first. Right? Well, okay, so the one that I think jumps out to me the most, and sorry if I take your guys' idea, but the one that jumps out for me the most is Tilly her arc through the season, I felt that of all the characters in this season, the one that had the most notable change from beginning of the season to the end of the season was Tilly. And the reason I say that is because in the first couple seasons, she seemed to be a little more on the comedy relief slash bubbly side of things. And young, naive, uh, really just kind of starting out. His discovery was her first onboard ship assignment, if I remember correctly. Okay. Yeah, she was Stamets' assistant. Right. So she was, she was pretty green, and uh, she started out as a cadet, went to uh, Ensign at some point in the first, first or second season. I think, don't remember. Um, and so she's she's thrust in this in this situation like all of them are where they are in a place and a time that they're not familiar familiar with and had to find out that one of the things that they were most familiar with the federation it pretty much collapsed so and, and there's this big cataclysm called the burn so i think she she really kind of matured for lack of a better word um you saw less of the bubbly, a little bit less of the bubbly, I think some less of the comedy relief kind of thing. And I think comedy relief might be the, the wrong word. Like she she wasn't, you know, falling over chairs, Jim Carrey kind of kind of stuff. But it seemed like if there was any humor to be had in Discovery and there was not much, that she was somehow involved um, in that in that scene. So then when she got promoted to first officer, that was where I really saw an uptick in that in that growth. And when she faced off with Osira and what was, you know, two two alpha people matching wits there, uh, that was a big notable change. It, it seemed like she just flipped that switch and and she meant business and was not backing down to Osira. That right there, anything else, that scene really, like, really got me. I kind of sat up and said, whoa, you know, she is, she means business and is not letting on. It's like she changed personality right there. She was in command. She she owned it, did the best that she could. Uh, ship got taken on her watch. But honestly, 
I, I really don't fault her on that. I think that that probably could have happened to anyone. They were just in a very tough kind of close to no win situation. They were outgone, outmatched by um, Osiris ship. What was it called? The Viridian. The, uh, right, right. The, the Viridian. So she, she handled it and then she led the, uh, the retaking of discovery and sure you had John McClane running around. I mean, Michael Burnham running around in air ducts or, um, uh, no Jeffrey's tubes, uh, to help retake the ship. But Tilly was a leader during that. And I definitely commend her for her efforts. And so yeah, to me, I think she had the most, um, fulfilling arc in regards to the dropped arcs. Um, I don't, there, there are no, there are none that jump out to me. And that's just because there weren't really any true arcs that I felt. It seemed like all the characters, oh no, Detmer. I think Detmer tended to be, and I don't think that was an arc that was going to, that was meant to last the whole season. It was a few episodes arc. Okay. Then they, then they dropped it, which yeah. I get it. There were more important things going on than, spending a whole season with her uh, head injury or PTSD or, or whatnot. Detmer was definitely one that I wanted to, to just touch on in, in saying that like, you know, she had just arrived here. She got that big head wound. They did a lot of focus on that. And then she has a breakdown at a party. It's sort of glossed over that, you know, she, you know, they, they apologize to each other and then everything's hunky dory. And I'm, I don't think that was I don't think that's quite it remember she had that crisis of confidence and then she like regained her mojo by piloting the Nautilus and that like suicide run on the Viridian like that's when she really got it back it wasn't the apologies or anything it was the she got to demonstrate that she's a badass pilot and Mm -hmm. uh, she can do that still I think that's more of what it was that sounds like a closed arc to me okay Okay. all right yeah Uh, I didn't feel it but that's just me that's just me you know plenty of other people may have taken that away in sort of a, a a whatever way they wanted to but i i kind of felt like maybe they should have spent a little bit more time digging into the why and the how of kayla detmer instead of having others sort of speak for her because that's how i felt it was she didn't get a chance to explain to others the reasons why she felt the way she did it just became explained to us why the crew in general was upset and this was detmer's outlet well all things considered, when you talk about the uh, the B crew, the, the the secondary recurring characters in the cast, uh, I, I was surprised that they even gave her that time because we we only got a little bit of background on um, Wilson. We got nothing on Bryce, Reese, or um, Nielsen. Um, God, the, the, the Saurian, um, Linus. Yeah. Linus, my brain is just not on today. So, so ba- basically out of, out of that, that B crew, they still did not really put a whole lot into the others. I was surprised that we got what we got out of, out of Detmer for those, those few seasons and a mention from OO about, uh, about her background, which was in the uh, season finale. Yeah. This is something that we, we bring up a lot is that discovery needs to start becoming an ensemble and it needs to stop being focused on the two or three characters per season. Um, 
you know, as much as I love Michael, I really want some of that character development from the other players here. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, we mentioned it before, but we've had half as much time with this crew that we would have had with um, a network Star Trek series with 20 something episodes. Um, but even in the first season of TNG, everybody got a spotlight. Yes, everyone had their own episode. Yeah, so you know, you'd learn about data through data lore, and you learned about Crusher in the Arsenal of Freedom, and so by the end of the first season, you kind of you kind of felt about these people. And here we are, three seasons into Discovery, half as many episodes, but we just started to get a taste of what uh, of who OO is, and I still don't know anything about Bryce or Reese. And here's a trivia question. What's the name of the chief engineer of Discovery? Oh, I think it, um, no, the name was, I don't recall the name ever being mentioned, just that there it's was a chief Stamets. engineer. It's, it's not the Stamets scientist. It's supposedly it's technically Stamets, though, because he but, was the engineer because the engine was the spore drive. Well, but right, but who runs the warp core? Good and, question. And who does Jordy's job? Like, Jet I'm Reno, in, maybe. I'm in the middle of well, but, uh, Discovery season two rewatch right now, and this time I'm actually paying attention because season three hooked me. But um, you know, in season one, Lorca talks about you know go to the chief engineer and make sure that these things are done, and I'm just like, who's the chief engineer, Lorca? Do you even know? Are we doing TNG season one again, where we have like three different people who are chief engineers and we never right. see them again? Yeah, Jeez. I feel like it's a lot of how Battlestar Galactica did it, right? Like it focuses on just the command crew and then the people who support them, like the chief engineers. You had seasons of Battlestar Galactica and you never met the chief engineer of the ship. Not oh wow, once. you never even saw the engine like the ship's power core until like the last episode you never hear about the guys you never hear about the guys that keep everything in working order (laughs) well you know what i think part of that is i really think that part of that is with the original series tng ds9 voyager enterprise you had very distinct standard positions you knew who the captain was the first officer the chief engineer chief medical officer uh you even have transporter chief with uh, with o'brien it, it just everyone's role was clearly defined you knew who they were and what they did and that's something that we were used to i think what we're not used to with this show is we want to know well, who's the chief engineer we want to know who is the chief medical officer uh I, I think it was Colbert. I thought it was, but at one point I thought it was the Pollard. The, uh, Pollard, yeah, I thought it was Pollard. So I'm not. My my best guess is I got the impression that it's actually Colbert is the the CMO. But that's that's the point. That's the point is we're guessing these other traditional positions that we were used to seeing, and it's it was hard to hmm. to get in touch with that. Okay, discovery is just not doing the traditional positions like that right and even though we got so used to it we have to kind of not be used to it and that's why i'm hoping that these first three seasons uh, amounted to roughly a season and a half of any other star trek iteration in history Uh, there were like roughly 36 ish episodes we've had a discovery so they they've packed all this in where essentially we've only seen a season and a half of what we would have seen in uh, the network uh, network version. Plus it's all compacted. So you don't have those uh, 24, 26 episode seasons where you can 
you can flesh out all of these characters. You can have the bottle episodes or, or whatever. You're right. taking that, a lot of those. We don't span like all of the star dates. Like every episode is not, this is what's happening this year. It's every season is, this is what's happened this weekend. And there's six different plots concurrently running. <laughs> well, no. So, so part of Star Trek that's changed, right. Is this whole focus on every season has a purpose or every season mm -hmm. has like a story, right? Everything is very seasonally sto like story driven, right? Yeah. Right. Cool. Cool. You can do that. That's fine. We've seen many shows that do that. Deep Space Nine did not do that. Deep Space Nine had a, had a show long arc, right? Even um, if we want to touch Enterprise on that for a, a sec, like, well, Enterprise season three was one big story with a bunch of mini arcs. Yes. D DS9's Dominion War arc lasted fifth, sixth, and seventh season. Right. And even then they found time to do Bada Bing, Bada Bing, and Take Me Out to the Holosuite. Um, but also those were 20 plus episode seasons, right. right? Which is still the biggest issue that I think we, we right. all agree on. Right. That's, right. that's, I think a foregone conclusion. Star Trek is not given enough time to germinate right now in a season. So, yeah, no, it's definitely distilling, you know, the writer's room has to be like, all right, who has ideas? And somebody says, all right, well, I need, uh, I need Laurel to have a baby. Okay. We'll do that. And then I need uh, section 31 to be here. Okay. We'll do that. All right. And then I need an, a malevolent AI. Okay. We'll do that too. And then I need, yeah. And then they're like, okay, these things have stuck to the wall. How can we weave them together? Okay. We'll do this. Okay. What about the, you know, ancient planet that knows everything? Okay. Sphere data. Got it. Um, they're, they're distilling out um a very concentrated plot and sort of letting that adjacent character stuff i guess they're making it more shown than told because i mean like right. we know we know bryce is the comms officer because we can read his display every time he's on camera mm -hmm. um i don't know i don't know what reese does i think tactical he's, is he tactical okay mm -hmm. i i'm just not paying attention then because that's right oh woes ops detmer's helm um, well, no, wouldn't Owo be, because back in those days, no, wouldn't, yeah, wouldn't she be navigation? Like she's in the checkoff spot of the, the 2250s and There's 60. a lot of stuff that Owo does that is very mm -hmm. operational for the ship. Okay. Um, I mean, know, yeah, she, yeah she probably. Yeah, she's got to know a lot about a lot. And okay. I'm just watching, like, again, in this rewatch, I'm watching all kinds of cool stuff happen with Owo, like, in season two when they're trapped in a little shed on that on terra Elysium, and she's yes. like hey if it's a sliding lock all i need is a magnet and a hanger and i'm like how does she know what <laughs> what survival class in starfleet deals with being trapped on a 20th century you know she was a luddite. shed she was a luddite remember she came from a background no, of people who like, that's didn't so in tech. true gosh past me just get with the program right we'll see but see how easy it is to, to miss those things so in the entirety of season two you got a little bit of character development with with Owo in season three you got a little bit with Detmer and see that's the thing is it, it takes a season for us to get some development on one character here one character there now here's my thought and this is why I think this is going to change in season four I really think that because season one was what it was that it started off on this just wild coke fueled dream and, and ideas and just this craziness and if you guys remember um i told you i, I can't recall where i saw the the article or this talked about but once what was happening with the season one uh started to really get up to the uh, excuse me to the higher ups 
it came back down that you, you guys need to unfuck this show. It, it, you know, if we need to take a break, stop and fix things. So that was why we had that break in season one, because they really had to course correct because the, uh, the higher ups, the suits were like, what in the hell is going on here with, with all this stuff? Um, that was why there were a lot of kind of things that started out and then were dropped. We kind of, in the course correcting had to be gradual. So you're, you're off the road, you're on the wrong path. You're trying to get back without doing a complete U-turn to sort of make it gradual. And so I think what happened was the second half of season one tried to fix some of that. Um, and then I, we got enterprise and, and Pike and Spock season two, I feel that that was a way to quickly try to get some of that goodwill back from the fans just because season one was so divisive. So now we have to get into where we need a season that is a winner, get Pike in there. They got a great actor in Anson Mount. Mm. You get uh, now, now we get number one and, and Spock. We're on some familiar territory. It, it feels good. We have the enterprise. Then that takes us to, okay, well, we have the sphere data. We have to go into the future to keep it away from, you know, everybody now we're in the future and we're, we're dealing with all of that. So to me, and by the, by the time we got to the end of the third season, it wasn't what I, what I've seen some discussions online about was that, well, there's not going to be a season four because they wrapped up everything in season three. No, they didn't. They, they wrapped up a lot of things that were um, left over from season one into season two. And then here we are in, in this season it was like the first three seasons were kind of a, a trilogy in of itself. Do you and have any examples of that though, BJ? Like um, examples of something from season one that they wrapped up in season three or from two that they wrapped up in three? Yes. Yes. So uh, season two, <clears throat> you had uh, some course correcting there was, especially with the, uh, the look and design of the Klingons. That was something that, I think was the one of the big things they uh, that they tried to to fix there. Sure, but they fixed um, that in season two. I'm, you're, you were saying right. a second ago that you think right. that they were fixing things in season three or wrapping things up in season three that were left over from one or two. I can't think of any. That's why I'm asking you to give me some examples. Well, um, okay, so season three, what what it wrapped up was the the sphere data situation and having to go into the future to get it away. I don't so think that's wrapped up at all. That's that's they're not going back, back right. They're still going to be in this century, so they're still going to be relevant to the twenty. Like to just to, to having gone forward. I think it was a one way trip. Yeah, right. it's a one way trip. I think it's plenty to. Uh, there's plenty sphere data stuff to unpack, um, but to to your point and in defense of Jay, season three wrapped up a commander for discovery. It's been, it hasn't had a captain since Lorca. Right. And, and okay, sure. You had Anson Mount who had his little emergency moment and he got to be seasons two, season two highlight. And then Saru comes aboard and he's the commander of discovery as they go into the future. And then, you know, throughout, uh, throughout the show, we're seeing Saru's highs and lows and then he goes and takes off with Sakal, and Michael is now the captain of Discovery. And I think that's that's one of the things that wraps up a loose end from season three. 
I think it's too soon to say that that's wrapped up, right? Like from season one, we've had we've had a different right. captain Thanks, every yeah. season. We had every single season. How do we know that in five we won't have a different captain than four? I don't think that's fair to say that that is wrapped up yet. Okay, okay, I I see what you're saying, Renzo. That, that may literally be the theme of the show, right? Like captaincy requires different people for the moment so <laughs> they give us a different captain every different season hey guys discovery is just the potions class of star trek <laughs> a different yeah. person every freaking year or not potions but uh defense against dark arts the yeah, different professor every freaking year well um, so for me what i saw from this season really like starts going down to the writers finally getting some idea of what they want to do like overall like they finally stopped like just just doing retroactive things right they mm -hmm. started to look forward to try to write some new things they want to do for themselves um but they're finding themselves very grounded or caught up in nostalgia or in like things that the fandom expects right cool so if they go to the future we expect to see earth if they go to the future we expect to see like some staples of the federation navarre or vulcan whatever right yep. they've done that they don't really need to go back, right? They can show us new things now, right? I think that's where we're going to be seeing in the fourth season and forward. It's going to be yes. like the the current setting, the setting that we expect, the 32nd century, but they're going to do some things that we didn't expect um, because we're going to be hearing about, hopefully, in the background, some of those other like effects happening, right? So we should be hearing in the background and secondary scenes like the Federation slowly rebuilding, but Discovery is doing something new. Discovery is exploring something new. Discovery is meeting people we haven't met before, right? Um, all that. Um, for some grander purpose because they love having season-long big bad villains and arcs that are all about saving humanity or the galaxy or whatever, mm -hmm. right? So that'll probably be what I think they're going to do in four. As for like a season three retrospective on it, like I, like I said, I think that they finally figured out what they're pushing for and they're just moving the obstacles to getting to that story out of the way. Right. That's why, to me, it, it felt like this was a trilogy. That the first three seasons was a trilogy, Season three recaps that uh, or, or caps that off. And once we go into to four, you know, we'll get like episode four, five and six in Star Wars. And I, I mean, when you when you were done with the prequels, you had a big part of the prequels wrapped up. Yes, but it wasn't completely closed when you get to episodes four, five and six. You're, you're dealing with some of the things that were a result of that first three. So I think when we get to season four of Discovery, they're going to be on a, a more fresh start, or at least they can be. They're not going to be um, ladled quite as much with everything that, that made it feel like, okay, th th these three seasons are uh, interconnected, whether intentionally or by mistake, uh, that, is, that is like that. So to look back on, on season three, to me, it it really it really felt like that this this is that final movie in the in the trilogy almost kind of like star trek's uh, two three and four you know mid, mid trilogy so in, in i get what you're saying by saying star wars right but yeah the problem though is that you're talking about truly prequels right like right. we had four five and six four five and six were made and established and then they went back and filled things in right? okay yeah you know that, that means that you have the benefit of like hindsight like what are things i want to explain in four five and six but 
you know, mm -hmm. there's nothing there. So now I can write one, two, and three. So sayeth George Lucas, and I'm going to make the universe make sense for four, five, and six, right? right? I don't have the benefit of that here. Right. They literally just wrote one, two, three. Now they have to write four. So it's not quite the same. That being said, I right. still think that the machete order is the proper way to watch Star Wars the first time. Yes. Somebody who's never seen it. Yes. Um, I think that some variant of that is better than watching it as one, two, three, four, five, six, et cetera. So for anyone who's interested in the machete order for Star Wars, it's episode four, five, one, two, three, six. Yeah. And we don't talk about seven, eight, and nine. <laughs> I mean, so, so no, I have we don't talk mine. about seven. Eight. We're not going to talk about them now, <laughs> but I had a friend of mine recently who'd never like really watched all Star Wars. She started watching it because one of her nep nephews liked Clone Wars and hmm. she liked Clone Wars and she thought Clone Wars was fun. She's like, how should I watch all Star Wars so I can relate to my, ne my nephew? I was like, oh, I got this for you. Yeah. I had her watch Rogue One first. Because cool. Rogue One serves as a really good prequel yeah, to uh, four, five, and six without yeah, okay. without without spoiling things. So mm -hmm. she did Rogue One, four, five, one, two, three, six, seven, eight, nine, etc. Right? Where do you fit in Han Solo? Oh, no, Solo. What? We don't talk about Han Solo. <laughs> that movie was awful. Uh, a, <laughs> okay. But I think I think she watched it sometime in the same time as the cartoons. I think as a parent, there is a a lot of responsibility with. How do I have my child watch Star Wars? It's big. I mean, do I do one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine? Do I do it how it was done? Four, five, six, one, two, three, seven, eight, nine? Or do I do machete? That's a lot of, it's like, so, oh man. Here's a cool thought for you. I don't know if you ran into this with Nacho at all or one of your kids, but um, uh, one of my best friends, his kids are love, love Star Wars, right? Mm -hmm. They grew up watching the Clone Wars cartoon, Rebels the cartoon, and right. Resistance the cartoon. That was what they grew up loving, right? And then when they got a little bit older, around like 10 or 11, he started them with uh, four mm -hmm. and was going to follow along with the whole thing. But 30 minutes into four, uh, they kill Obi-Wan Kenobi. And for somebody who's just watching Star Wars for the first time, it's like, okay, old guy who is a teacher dies, what the fuck ever, right? Mm -hmm. His kids had grown up watching Clone Wars where Obi-Wan Kenobi is one of the main characters where he is this father figure that was very important to them, right? That would and be so rough. They killed him off, yeah. right? So they, they had a really rough time watching four or five before going and seeing one, two, three. Yeah, I can that's imagine. Something I can't relate to because for me, seeing Obi-Wan die was like, that's the beginning of the movie. You know, especially if you've seen Clone Wars... Why are we talking about Star Wars? How did we yeah. get into? <laughs> you, you did this, Big J. This time it's did I do this? Uh, it's, yes. uh, it's on See, me. And I was going to be like, no, 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 no. Seasons one, two, and three of Discovery are like Back to the Future trilogy, where each oh. each each instance is its own closed story, and they weave together this character of of Marty McFly. And I, I think that. I was going to say that they were like the first three Jurassic Park movies. Because I should they, have said that they too. share a similar story. They have overlapping elements of them. They lead into one another, but they don't tell the same story. Like they tell independent plots that essentially don't bump into each other very much at all. Sorry, everyone. Bad example. That's on Big J. It tells you where all of us uh, where it tells you where our roots are though. Big J's Star Wars. I'm Back to the Future. Renzo's Jurassic Park. It's all good. So we've we're we've got trilogies, beyond. right? Right. We so so we, we, all, we all agree. The first three seasons do feel like a trilogy. Yes. Yes. I feel it's 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 unfair, in a negative way, to say that one, two, three should be treated as a prequel to four because we said that about three. We were like, oh, one and two yeah. were just set up for three. We rehashed all that. I remember. I, I mm -hmm. really dislike giving them the benefit of the doubt there. I think that that's just like 
a negative mark on the writing of the show. If every time we see a new season, it feels like it's prequel to the next one. That's bad. Yeah. I would very much, I mean, just given the fact that seasons one, two, and three are connected in the sense that they pick up where the last one left off, you know, enterprise docks with, or enterprise meets up with discovery and then boom, enterprises with discovery. And Oh, by the way, enterprise has a catastrophic failure. So captain Pike has to come over and transfer the mission to discovery. And we're going to go investigate these things. And then at the end we go into the future and what happens now. And that picks up immediately. And now we, we have a, we have a two, you know, the end moment for, season three we've completed this big long arc of stories now give the characters some time to fit into their roles and let's meet up with them in season four you know six months to a year later when all these you know reunification efforts for the federation are well underway and we don't have to we don't have to sit there and let season four be every episode. We're going to visit a new species and we're getting them back into the Federation. That would not be a great season four. Agreed. Like I love world building. I love building in the backstory. I like seeing the politics of it. Those scenes in those early star Wars and the star Wars prequels where it's just the galactic Senate. Oh man. Love them. I and I'm too. in the minority for those. Right. But what? I don't I think it's good TV. I can't even sit through the phantom menace anymore. It's the most boring back when it was coming out. I mean, I was in college and and that was the biggest thing for us was we grew up on star Wars. So it was just awesome that we were getting more of it. We, we thought we would never see a star Wars movie again. So I think everyone just got so wrapped up in the fact that we've got star Wars again, that you kind of had, like, I had the blinders on and I just remember years later, I tried watching the Phantom Menace again and I couldn't, it was like, it was killing me. It's like, well, this is me Westwood space. Give me yeah, no, space. Really? I will enjoy the hell out of that. Okay. Yeah. I'm just going to say, Jay, you saw bomb bad and you should feel bomb bad. Oh my God. Season one, two, and three. I should have said back to the future as a, as a, can be, I'm sorry. What, Renta, what was that? I'm just saying, I just don't, I agree that this is make good TV. I, I agree that most people are just going to be turned off by it. That's, that's fine. I know I'm in the minority. I love political stuff like oh, that. Man, I would so, do. I would do a West Wing in space Star Trek series where we deal with the politics of the Federation. You need to read articles of the Federation. I have articles of the Federation. Yeah, yeah, but you need to read. But, but like, think about Star Trek Four for a second. The scenes yeah. in at Federation headquarters where at the beginning, the Klingon ambassador is like, renegade and terrorist. And the president's like, Kirk is going to be on trial for nine violations of Starfleet regulations. And the Klingon guy is pissed. Of course he's going to be pissed. I can feel for the Klingon guy. I just had one of my Starfleet great- regulations, that's outrageous. You know, one of my great house lords has just been executed by Kirk on a planet that served as as a front for a terraforming weapon that's going to be used against the Klingon Empire. Now, that's not true. We know that's not true, but that's what the ambassador feels is true. And mm-hmm. even if he doesn't feel as true, even if he's being a slightly bit ingenuine there, he's still saying something that everyone in the Federation needs to think about. Like, what happens if this falls into the wrong hands? What happens if a bad administration comes to power here and suddenly decides that Vulcan needs to shut up or they're going to get terraformed? Well, this is part of what made the the undiscovered country so awesome, right? Like it sets up the political 
uh, interplay between honestly the Soviet Union and the United States Dude. in a way that is abstracted, right? Praxis was Chernobyl, guys. Yes. FYI, right? The collapse of the Klingon Empire over the next six years was the fall <clears throat> apart of the Soviet Union. Right. Shocker, right? These things have a parallel here. Yeah. So, like, when they tell good stories that way, you can have political stories that don't feel bogged down like the the Clone Wars or the Phantom Menaces, like Congress scenes. Because, yeah, right. those are pretty slow. Um, so what I would like them to do in four is give me some of that, but give me that in the background. As an example, when the episode starts, you get like a captain's log. We've just finished up our thing with the Trill. The Trill needed help moving an asteroid out of their thing, and they've been welcomed back to the Federation. Then they go off to do the thing that's actually in the episode, right? But like mm-hmm. build the universe with little things like that. You don't have to show everything. You don't have to. If it's going to be something that like detracts from the story you want to do, fine. Don't show it but at least tell it. Start doing away missions again and include these other people, Bryce, Nielsen, Linus, everyone else. Like, like oh, let's, whoa. right, oh, well, let's what stop making only, them. How many away missions did we have this season? We had like two, I think. One on two, where, where Nan leaves herself to die, like on that ship, the seed ship, right? And yeah. the other one is when they go and save Quajan. I think those are the only two like real away missions. Uh, and then the one on Trill. When, when Michael took. Oh, that's fair. Well, and then, and then, and then the one where Michael goes, t- that takes that unauthorized mission with George O to the slave planet to get book back. Right. Did we have any away missions where, where Burnham did not go on them? Mm, no. See, that's the thing. That's what I'm talking about is I, you have few away missions. And when you do, it's primarily going to be Michael, Saru, Tilly, now, it, it, they're not mixing in. Right, you can have them, sure, sure. But they're just not mixing in the, the B crew. And they're just woefully being uh so my other is think characters like jet reno right like right even in scenes where it would make sense for jet reno to be there like when they have all of the senior staff like locked up in the in the in the the captain's meeting room right no jet yeah they 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 didn't include her for some reason it makes no sense right like she's very clearly important character she's a guest star on the show she is very recognizable those are efforts you should be making but instead Uh, we got the rando Inga instead of uh, Nilsson was also a mistake, I think. I don't understand the why, especially when Nilsson showed up later in the episode. Like, yeah, well, on, our, on our last live choices. on our, on our last live stream, when, when we talked about that, uh, we we called Ben, uh, my best friend Ben, who's an actor out in in um, you know in Hollywood, and he explained that there's there's a lot of uh, Screen Actors Guild things kind of kind of behind that, which I get that. Like as a as a back end thing, I understood what he was saying in regards to the the roles that an actor may play and how they are, are paid for certain things or whatever. It's just that to me, Anything, I think what Ben said backs us up on our concern. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I did. It, you're right. That bothered me so much that we have eight or nine you know different, what? you know, B characters and they throw in this random person when they could have used anyone else. Maybe. Maybe there was a scheduling conflict. Maybe those other actors just weren't available. That's a lot of actors not be well. It's okay, two. Let me... it's it's Jet and Nelson. It happens all the time. Right? Like we have many a scene where we would expect to see Jet in something and yes. we don't. You're right. You're right. So if anyone had so, a what looked right. like a notable. So, 
what we're saying is, is Tig Notaro, if you're listening, we're advocating for you to become a full star on the show and not just a guest star because we need more jet everywhere. You're right. On the bridge and engineering. I don't even care if like we're on the bridge and, and jets like doing something at the station and we cut to engineering and jets just there. And throughout the whole season, we're like, how is jet doing this? And then we realized that jet has just made a several holograms of herself to just run stuff on the ship because everybody's fucking nuts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it would be like if you had episodes that were very obvious that you need the chief of security around and Worf was nowhere to be found. You know, Michael Dorn was not available. For, so we've for, had shows where we didn't have like main character slots filled, right? Like, right. Yeah. Us, we didn't really have a chief of security. He had a name. We saw him a couple of times, but he was not a significant character. right? Sure. And eventually they had to fill that role in later on in the movies because it made sense that someone in the main cast would know or do that thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, other shows have handled this, I think actually better. So uh, the Orville, uh, had an issue where they, their chief engineer was not a main character cast guy, right? Like he was right. seen a couple of times, he knew his name, but he was fucking milk toast, right? Mm-hmm. He's not, not an interesting character. So they essentially retired him, made one of their existing characters chief engineer. And now every time you have a chief engineer relevant scene, there's your character, right? Somebody that you yeah. can connect to that's now in that role. Right. Kind of did the Jordy transition. Right. It, it, it lets you grow your characters, right? Which is mm-hmm. great. But you gotta have time to do it. The Orville has the benefit of having more episodes per season than Discovery, so they have time to do this. Right. And right. the Orville also has the benefit of admittedly not taking itself seriously and, and being able to get away with a lot of the stuff that we are nitpicking about Discovery, because Discovery really does try and take itself very seriously. Well, that's because that it because of Star Trek. Star Trek establish itself from day one like that and that's why it is what it is the orville would never presented itself as a serious sci-fi battlestar galactica slash star trek kind of thing it, it, no it, disagreement presented, it, was, it was presented i as think it's more serious than people give it credit for okay yeah more serious than people think but less serious than star trek or yeah Battlestar Galactica uh, 2004, it, it, because the Orville started off right away with the promos, the, the trailers, the media talk, everything was that it was going to be that there was going to be humor. I mean, it was coming from Seth MacFarlane for crying out loud. You, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was going to have that. So that's where they have that, that benefit of that, because you walk into it stating what you're going to be, whereas Star Trek has already stated that way before. So it's kind of tough. To, to Star change. Trek has had way more sense of humor than Discovery has had, right? Like, well, yeah, yeah. We have always had way more fun in Star Trek than we have with Discovery. There yes. was a planet of games in TOS, right? Early on, we saw that there are silliness is going on. The naked now and the naked time where our crew gets drunk off of space water and tries to fuck everything that moves. <laughs> Goofy shit happens in Star Trek, guys. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But like, I think that Discovery has been a little bit too serious for the most part. They've gotten better. I think that the fact that, and I agree with you that they've shifted uh, Tilly away from being like a comedic force to just mm-hmm. being a bit more serious. I think that's kind of to their detriment, but they do need to spread out that, that like aspect of things. I like the fact that a show can mock itself or mock its genre a little uh, and still have a good story, right? So shows that have done that in the past, like Farscape, or even sometimes a show like Lex, which is really goofy, right? Wow, Still manages Lex. to criticize its own that. genre well. Mm-hmm. And Discovery just takes everything straight. 
It takes everything with no lampshade hanging. It just goes straight into the into anything. Well, and Discovery tries to avoid these tropes, and in doing so is just stepping blindly into the same tropes that it's trying to avoid, right? When a show is mature enough about itself to be a little irreverent about itself, I think Star Trek benefits, and I think most shows benefit, right? So a scene like the doctor singing in an opera, La Donna Immobile, about giving Tuvok a hypospray to calm him down from his fiery rage of Ponfar <laughs> is an amazing scene, right? It's something only Rod Picardo could pull off, right? It's awesome. And it's considered iconic. Yeah, and we've seen nothing even close to as fun in all of Discovery, right? Again, I think that boils down to Discovery just not having enough time to do anything uh, irreverent or fun because they only get like 13 episode seasons every year. However, it's not impossible. Now, season one had zero humor. I don't remember laughing or chuckling at anything in season one. So the bar was so low that when we got into season two, it was easy to incorporate some more humor. Yeah, there was more of that in season two, even more in, in three, I thought. So I think that, that, but here's the thing though, we have to be careful with that because uh, Voyage Home, the humor worked. It was great. Excellent. The movie didn't. The what voyage home with the, oh, the no, humor? sorry no no but that but it didn't affect the movie though right like right no no it right yeah it, well i was about to just double dumbass on you for a second because i thought you were dissing voyage home no 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 i thought so too i was like no 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 my point is that the humor was you could see the humor in that even if you didn't watch star trek right like right it, right irrespective fit. Exactly. Well, no, the, the humor is it didn't fit and both didn't fit is my point. Like you can watch it as a non-Star Trek fan and still find things funny. Like the doctor, doctor, I grew a new kidney. Like that's yeah. fucking hilarious. Yeah. But whether you know Star Trek or not, that's good. Right. And to. I understand what you're saying there is, is the humor in Star Trek four wasn't necessarily a part of the, the plot continuing or falling apart. It's the opposite of Lower Decks. Lower Decks is funny, but because of its Star Trekiness, right? It's funny right. because it's referencing Star Trek stuff. Whereas uh, Star Trek Four was not was funny, but not because of its Star Trekness. Right. It was because it was the fish out of water kind of thing. It was thing. the anachronism yeah, was aspects funny. of theme. Yeah. But here, here's what I was going to say. Sounds like that, the goddamn Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> but here's here's what I was going to say that they should be really cautious of with with this growing humor and discovery is not making the same mistake that final frontier did star trek 5 it it took the humor that worked in star trek 4 tried to apply that also to 5 and it just things were falling flat left and right it, it just it didn't work it was yeah. a disaster but not then you got Shatner was just a bad director on well, and, yes. yeah, and yes. there were quality issues because ILM was working on other things, and so they had to outsource to like two or three other mm -hmm. places for that. Yeah, mm -hmm. it was not great. Yeah, and like all Star Trek movies have their flaws, right? Like the scene in Six, which is my favorite Star Trek movie, uh, where they're like trying to decode Klingon and they're pulling out these books to find things. Uh, in like, a big box of books. Where the yeah, hell was this? We can't use the Universal Transitor. It would be recognized. And then, Vakech, Vaku. This is terrible, guys. And I love that because Nichelle objected and she's like, if the Klingons are our chief enemy, 
Uhura mm-hmm. should mm-hmm. be able to speak Klingon. Mm-hmm. And I love that they sort of retconned that in the Kelvin timeline where Uhura does speak Klingon and Romulan, all three dialects and, 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 and I think that's absolutely great. Agreed. Um, but they also make that funny part in what was it? Uh, was it season two where Saru's like, I speak 94 languages. And then they have that bug on the ship after they get the sphere data where, you know, everybody's the universal translator is translating everybody into different languages and only Saru can speak or read what's happening. You know what, though? I wonder if that was a case where Uhura knows Klingon, like you can understand Klingon, you know, the words. And if you don't know every word, you're good at being able to pick up the context of what you said by most of the words, but can't speak it, or at least not that well. I rationalize it different, right? So my rationalization for that scene was just, if you use a universal translator, it speaks received pronunciation of English, for example, right? And you know that that's a very specific accent. Right. When she learned Klingon, she learned Klingon from a culture that was essentially at conflict or at war with Federation. So she speaks Klingon with the received pronunciation, whereas the bros that she's talking to in that one scene speak Cockney. (laughs) She can't oh, speak or see pronunciation to Cockney because right. that will be noticed, right? She, yes. She's speaking it herself. That being said, she should know the words. Maybe not the slang, but she should know the words. And then it was just really clunky scene. So instead of going through I a like dictionary that. to piece it together, she was looking at a pronunciation guide to, yeah. okay. Well, it would, yeah, All like right. if, 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 any of us, if any of us we went have... to Scotland or Ireland or wherever, we may know the <laughs> words, but... Doing the accent would be tough and probably sound stupid doing it. So yeah, it may have been an accent kind of thing. Like, like those, those two bros at the listening post might've been, might've been Southern Klingons, you know, and she does, she's in her as a Northern human. So you can't. Oh, totally. If I tried to talk with a Southern accent right now, I would sound stupid. It's like, I know the word, I know what they're saying to a degree, but I can't sound like it. Here's something that I have been trying to put into concept since mm-hmm. we started talking about this this episode of, of, of beyond trek and you guys have really really helped me figure out one thing that's missing between our breakdowns of discovery and the way we talk about older shows is that you know even enterprise and before they all have they all get the first, they all get the benefit of the doubt, but they also get the benefit of fans like us coming together and hashing out head cannons that make sense. And they've had decades to do this. 16 years ago, Enterprise went off the air. We've had 16 years to go, wait, this doesn't make any sense and have hundreds of people ask that question and come to sort of a resolution on that. TNG, DS9, Voyager, Renzo, your own head cannon for Star Trek VI, which turns 30 this year. Discovery doesn't have any of that all of those debates are still up in the air let's come back in 10 years and do a discovery season one two three retrospective and go what head cannons have come out in the last 10 years yeah. what kids what kids teenagers and high schoolers who are who, who for, for these people star trek is their childhood discoveries their childhood trek You're right. and as kids when we watched yeah. those shows we gave it the benefit of the doubt because we didn't know all the crazy stuff that we know now about science and yeah a lot of it does not hold up um you're right but, I, but so most ahead. of my criticisms of the season though and of discovery in general aren't internal to the story they're not internal to the universe they're mostly external they're like writing choices they're yes. directorial choices they're 
Right. Those sorts of things. So that's where I find myself criticizing the show more. But even as kids, when we were watching those shows, we didn't think about writers true. making these kinds that's of mistakes. True. Season You're right. two, season two of TNG is a shit show, but it's, a, <laughs> it's not, it's not a shit show because bad mistakes were made during that season. It's a shit show because Pulaski. That's why it's a shit show. You're okay. right. Pulaski can be argued. There's some episodes where she shines, some where she doesn't. And I'm not gonna, I'm not here to debate that. I'm here to say in 1988, there was a Writers Guild strike. Yes. They had to pull scripts that had been sitting under on, on dusty shelves for a year or more since season one. They even pulled stuff from phase two, the canceled series in 1977, and just said, instead of Ilea getting pregnant, it's going to be Troy, and it's going to be this weird thing. And today, <laughs> today you watch the child and it's cringe it's like whoa yes no we would never do that today right um so but but when you're when you're a kid you know that came out i was i was six i was six years old watching d d uh, season two of of tng you were six oh i was God. six yeah i know and <laughs> and i mean you were you were 11 get yeah, out of <laughs> <laughs> um but we, we didn't think about the writers for, for me, like I was six years old. I hadn't even had the conversation with my mom yet about these things not being real. I wanted to be on the enterprise as an adult when right. I grew up because I, I thought it was to be on the enterprise real. When I, grow up. <laughs> when I grow up. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but I but that, that, that's the heart of what I'm trying to say. We're yeah. much better critics of writing and, and genre and fiction and science and Star Trek is our bread and butter. So we give it the most scrutiny, but we, we have informed opinions over years and decades of becoming more critical about the content we enjoy. When I'm a kid, my mom's like, watch the show. It's fun. I'm like, oh, space and robots. We, yeah. um, I don't care about the writing at all as a, as a 12 year old. So in 10 years, if you're, if you're a kid watching it, listening to beyond Trek now, give us your opinions in 10 years, <laughs> what you think about star Trek. When you do let, you watch. let me just tell you something that I think really supports what you're saying. So it took until I think it was maybe a year or so ago, uh, that I read this theory that always bothered me about Voyager. And after all this time, it was explained. And this this theory like fit so well, that it made me look back on the first few seasons of Voyager, like, Oh, wow, this makes perfect sense. But you didn't have that before. Yeah, Voyager's basically doing a figure eight around all the places where Neelix knew how to go to stocking up and supplying et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's why they kept running into the same damn people and aliens and whatnot. You think they're going in a straight line to earth, but how they keep running into some of these same people, they weren't, they were just flying around mostly in, in you know, three dimensional circles. Yeah. Uh, so, so yes, so that that's with season three of discovery, I am sure there are going to be things that we're going to see differently. I mean, we're, we're pretty good now of uh, analyzing and dissecting these things, but what you just said today, uh, explaining Uhura and Star Trek six and the whole Klingon thing that, that uh, you, Dag, you said that was, that, yeah, that was 30 years ago this year. I like that just now makes sense. That, that what you said there was like, that is the perfect explanation. Yeah. I never thought of that all this time that scene bothered me you're right because she should know it she should be able to speak it the whole thing with the books yeah it was funny but it didn't fit until you said 
it would be like, you know, suddenly trying to speak with a Cockney accent or whatever else, you know, the words, but you're going to have a hard time pulling that off. So yeah, yeah, that's, well, you know what, there's, I just thought of a hole there in that just because they were Scottish Klingons doesn't mean that she has to speak with that dialect. If, if I'm, if I'm trying to enter a building that I'm not supposed to be in or an area I'm not supposed to be in just because the guy guarding the gate is, is, is that, that doesn't mean I have to have the same accent he does. So I used Cockney specifically, not a geographic one, but like a class-based one, because the people who pilot like transport freighters might all be lower class and the lower class people speak with that accent that's, that's right. why it's cockney not geographic right? yes they they did say that they were like <laughs> the freighter okay. yeah. stuff from one place to another and okay okay and the fact the fact that they're that that their pronunciation I was put so thought broken this. you yeah. did jeez that's, i had a rebuttal really and you rebutted my rebuttal <laughs> it's the the fact that the the enterprise's pronunciation was so broken and they still got through is a full good sign of that because the other klingons are just like these guys are f- drunk off their asses just let them go right they it's were laughing drunk. scene oh, 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 oh. <laughs> so <laughs> awkward <laughs> <laughs> click <laughs> for a movie that is generally regarded as really good right most people yeah. like undiscovered country i yep. is my favorite of the tos era movies right there the byline, are rough scenes. The byline for this episode of Beyond Trek has to be something like, this was supposed to be a season three retro and it just turned into everything retro. <laughs> and, you know, every time this happens, like, I, I don't, I, how did we get here? I mean, I have no knowledge or recollection of how we getting into these. <laughs> well, different... it's because we were talking about how we give Stark old Trek the benefit of the doubt and we come up with like explanations for things. Yeah. So here's an example of it, and... whatever. Even even if we get even for like new fans of Star Trek uh, of any of them that came out before we're discovery, the now. Uh, we're the greatest. Yeah, but also like <laughs> when 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 you get it when you get somebody new who's like oh man I really want to watch new Trek and they go and they post a thing on Reddit or they talk to their friends about Discovery or or TNG sorry not Discovery old Trek. Deep Space Nine, TNG, Enterprise, whichever one they want to talk to about people, they're interacting with people who have probably either firsthand headcanon or have also interacted with people who've been the benefit of this headcanon. So all of this is written down somewhere. I, I just default to Reddit, but you can read about all these things and just assume the headcanon while you're watching the episode. So it becomes ingrained and discovery doesn't have that time yet. It's still, still on the grill. So I tested yes. this, that theory out very recently. So two, no, this would have been like four years ago now. Uh, I have a thing I've done since I was a little kid where I would trade. I would watch something that they wanted me to watch and they would watch something I want them to watch. Usually it's pretty mutual. Usually it's stuff that we both think oh, that we'll okay. like and just knock it around to it. Mm-hmm. done it forever. I've called it equivalent exchanges. I'm very clever with my names. Yep. Um, so I traded with a friend of mine. I would watch all of Doctor Who, all of it. He would watch all of Star Trek. He didn't realize that these were kind of uneven trades, but that's his own problem, not mine. Um, he mm-hmm. was my roommate, so we watched a lot of Star Trek together. We had a big discussion about what order he wanted to watch them in. I recommend that he watch them in chronological order. So Enterprise first, then TOS, then TAS, then uh, he didn't really, yeah, he didn't watch Discovery at the time because it just wasn't out yet when he started right. this all. Um, but he made it through all of Star Trek. He has watched 
every episode, every movie. And I know that because, well, we there he sends a me lot a lot of it and he sends me like uh, line by lines or like <laughs> reactions as he goes through lots of shows. So it's great. So I've seen how it goes for somebody completely new to Trek to just get into it. Now he harasses me being like, have you seen Discovery yet? Did you see the Disco episode? Did you watch it yet? So we can talk about it. So it's good to have like created a fan in utero, essentially, right? Like I made him out of a, out of an unborn child, essentially. <laughs> you created a monster, is what you did. It's amazing. It's great. And I do the same thing. Like we went. Like the only time I've broken quarantine in the last like month, basically, has been to go to his house to watch the Doctor Who Christmas special. Right. Wear a mask. Oh yes, yes, yes. We watched okay. it inside, but I had a mask on. But it was fine. <laughs> we don't have a projector or anything. But. Oh, okay. Right. Right. I think yeah. that's, I think that's awesome. And I, I definitely vibe with that because there are people that I'm watching different kinds of Trek now, like Cal and I are going through Voyager for the first time. My sister and I are going through TNG for the first time. I'm doing discovery streams for friends who haven't seen discovery. So like even Renzo, when you were like live posting the latest up, the, the finale of Discovery to me, it still felt like cool. This is something new, some new interest stuff. And so it's, it's amazing when they get going, like when when they just sit down and it's like noon one day and just say, they're like, I'm going to watch an episode. I'm just going to watch an episode. <laughs> then it's like 1 a.m. and they haven't stopped. It's amazing. Right. It feels really good that you just got somebody marathoning it, like having a blast. <laughs> right. And then I guess the other the other chemical in that soup is we grew up at a different time when different like geopolitical awareness campaigns were happening. And now we have people who are going through what's going on in the world today also getting in touch with Star Trek. So there's just uh, there's just a little bit of um, content chemistry happening there with uh, the way people watch it and the when and I think that is super lovely. Um, Can I talk about I, drop storyline in season three after you're done, Dag? Uh, I'm kind oh of boy. just rambling, so go for it. <laughs> okay, <clears throat> so I'm going to talk about dropped plot line. The most jarring one for me in season three, it was actually so subtle that once you realize that it was just dropped, it, it kind of, I was kind of like, oh, well, wait a minute they really kind of just um, just let this one fade so well that when you realize that it went away, it's kind of, uh, you know, slap in the, in the head was the whole SB 19 thing. It started as being this folder research information that there, there, there was a, um, uh, a trial on it. Um, this inquisition to try to get this information. It was so tightly kept and, and guarded by, by the Navarre that you had to go through all these steps to even look at it. And they, they said that the, the data on here had, uh, I, I remember one of them saying that it had, I'm paraphrasing some political, um, Implications, yeah, and, uh, yeah, uh, political implications. I mean, they they made it sound like if you get a hold of this info, it would be like here today that this is the info that would prove the existence of extraterrestrials. This would be the info that shows you who shot JFK. This would be like everything that has been a tinfoil hat 
or a conspiracy on our planet, this is the definitive answer for all of it and has all these implications. So they made it such a big deal. A whole episode was devoted to how big of a deal it was. And then it went from that to they're they're decrypting all the info and that takes like 1100 hours to decrypt and all this stuff and they did that and then they find out okay there's a distress signal in this nebula and there's a ship in there and so by the time we got kind of into that part and got onto the the, sh the ship and to call and all that i went back and i thought okay hold on a minute what was this info that was so tightly guarded that Navarre basically left the Federation over it, that there was this, this trial to get it, everything else. It ended up being like not a, not a big deal. It, it, it certainly was not what they made it out to be enough. No. Where I just, I forgot about it. I mean, what was the, the big deal about it? So it wasn't so much the data. It was also just the fact that it was what the Vulcans thought had caused the burn. They had spent, century or so which is not a whole lifetime for a vulcan but pretty significant amount of time uh thinking that they were responsible for the burn and that they were forced to do it by the federation right so mm -hmm. any cooperation with the federation is probably unpopular and then especially cooperation regarding this project is probably like treasonous almost in the minds of many on navar right so giving them this information giving them any information is probably very politically sub like sensitive as for like what came from it, I think they used it up. I think it was just like we could use this data to identify the cause of the burn or or the the, the source of the burn, right? And that's what they did. Here's what I find kind of interesting about it, though. The Vulcans had that data for 120 years, and they figured that it was themselves. They used that data and identified it as themselves, probably because they came into it with like a uh, a false mindset, right? Like we caused this, so let's prove that we caused this, and then they use that data to prove that they caused it. Uh, Michael Burnham with the same data and like three extra data points, three, um, managed to prove that it wasn't them, probably because she came into it with an opinion that it means it wasn't them, which just tells me that, you know, Vulcan scientific rigor has broken down in the last 800 years, right? The Vulcans wouldn't have allowed the preconceptions to like damn themselves so easily, right? Like they wouldn't have taken such a, a pyrrhic stand that way. It, it it seems a little funky. I'm with you. It, it was not enough explained into what kind of data it was, but I don't think it mattered as much. So you're saying it wasn't so much the data. It was the fact that if they, if they gave it, if they cooperated with it and put it in the hands of the Federation and that they, they would find another way to, you know, I guess, chafe someone or, or, or do whatever so it's not the no. data itself it's the fact that they were giving it yes okay. i think it's the cooperation that was the unpopular pit um but the data itself is still dangerous right because they thought they thought that this caused the burn what, what so made them think that they caused it their own preconceptions their own like moral self-flagellation i don't know it was some, some sort of like cultural way, like way of abusing yourself almost it was very self-abusing the way that they were doing because at, at, the, at the time they didn't have the three data points that Michael came up with. So they didn't know that there was actually an originating location. Which I, which doesn't make any sense to me, but that's something we can rationalize for later. That's, that's easily rationalizable, right? Like the kind of data they had just didn't give them point location for a cause or something. Correct. The data they had was essentially it just, it just happened because 
even with the, the three points of data that Michael had, it was down to what, like the, the millionth of a nanosecond in between. And it was, it was some impossibly minuscule thing, but there was a difference. Um, and Navarre, they didn't have these flight recorders because the, the odds of getting them were probably so rare that they assumed they were, that they weren't there. But yeah, we don't somehow, really know what well, the SB29 data or SB19 was it, data was. Was it SB19 I, or SB29? What the, I don't know. I think had a nine here's, here's my extraction from, from this conversation mm -hmm. is um, I think we could try and rationalize this all day, but that's the point is we're sitting here trying to rationalize it. And it wasn't made clear in that episode where they analyzed the SB19 data, data how valuable or invaluable it was versus the political implications it had for Navarre. And I've been spinning off going, what if it was a conspiracy? What if there was an isolationist movement on Vulcan that happened and the burn was the perfect opportunity to catalyze on an isolationist exodus? But that's what they were making it sound like. The Vulcans or the Romulans that were pushing isolationism? It sounds like it's the Vulcans, right? Yeah. Now, doesn't that sound like an interesting idea for, for like a plot somewhere, right? A for, reforming on Navarre, where it's the Vulcans that want to stay out of international pol or interstellar politics, and the Romulans want to get back in. Yes, yes. That sounds like an interesting story arc to me. That would be great, but again, it's all based on us sort of extrapolating what happened. And it's I think we mentioned this in, in maybe in our live stream too, where mm -hmm. Discovery Discovery has had this flip where they they tell us what they should have shown us and they show us what they could have just told us mm -hmm. and right. it, it would have again the 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 it needed to be clearer why that sb19 data was so politically tumultuous and i agree with both of you there's there might have been aspects of the data that that co corroborated various other sources informing them that they were the cause of the burn mm -hmm. it might have just become politically tenuous to even talk about sb19 and if it had become revealed that we had given away the sb19 data to the federation that we're no longer aligned with that could erupt into chaos sure but even, but just that we have to speculate on the why is is one of the reasons why the writing needs to get cooler yeah. I'm with you. I mean, so if you look at like not even distant history, but like pretty recent history, there have been times where minor countries do something really, really secret, and then it becomes a very big deal to hide it, right? Mm -hmm. South Africa, the country of South Africa, when it was still an apartheid state back in the 70s, had a nuclear weapons program. They succeeded and made nuclear weapons. They actually did it, right? Like this isn't some secret or anything, right? They tested them and everything. Now, where it becomes secretive is the fact that they may have traded that technology to other countries and they have never really disclosed whom or when or why, right? Or sold things, right? Now, if you look at the international relations scuttlebutt, which is legit, right? They probably traded or dealt with the Israelis when doing so at the time. That's mm -hmm. cool. But that's something that both the Israelis deny to their last breath and so do the South Africans, even though they've had multiple changes in regime since then, right? South Africa has, has denuclearized. They gave up the fact that they could build nuclear weapons. They dismantled all of them, but they still won't admit who they worked with at the time. So if you have a state that's kind of small, like Navarre essentially is, and you put them on the spot where it's like, admit this thing, tell us this thing, they may just rather burn than say it, right? They may, it may be like a point of pride. And the Vulcans, we know, though they may be unemotional, are prideful as fuck. Yeah. So, 
Uh, I, I think I, <clears throat> I think I see what you're saying there. And let me, let me rephrase it this way. You can tell me if, if I'm right. It would be like the U S uh, we have all this, this arsenal and so does Russia. Um, but there's this country, the, the Israel, and let's, let's say as, as far as we know, they don't have any nuclear weapons. If they did, it would be a serious Open implication season. for us. Right. But then suddenly we find out they do don't know how they got it. And they're not saying how they got it, but we know they didn't develop it. So now that's kind of have uh, some serious political implications because who provided this? Was it Russia? Was it someone else? And now you're, you're really on the defensive. Is, is that kind of what you're, what you're saying? Sort of, except it's okay. smaller, right? If Russia's yeah. doing something, Russia's a big city from power. If Russia starts flexing its muscle, it can get away with doing things just because of its size, right? But here mm-hmm. we're talking about somebody who's small and semi-isolated and doing something that is remarkable. It's impressive to develop your own nuclear weapons program or to develop SB-19 in this equivalent, right? But being forced to give that up to someone, it could be like, we'd rather just know. Yeah. What okay. if, I think, I think a, a more proper analogy might be like, um, the Vulcans were willing to give us the receipts showing that transactions happened on these dates, but they didn't say with whom. Oh, and, okay. and so that that's that might be what the SB19 data is, is just the raw data. Here's where the transactions occurred. Figure mm-hmm. that out. But You've they didn't they, they're not talking about but maybe they're not talking about who operated those facilities. Um, because the SB19 thing was like a quadrant wide satellite network or something that they were it was a transport relay system that they were trying to use to transport ships through and it looked beautiful and promising but then you know the 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 burn happened and they figured that it had something to do with maybe their transport networks um you know like for instance what if the burn happened and the transport network actually amplified the subspace instability throughout the rest of the areas then mm-hmm. they could blame themselves they could be like oh geez without uh without our stuff being active the burn would have been super limited so maybe it really was us <laughs> they didn't want to talk the about that made us now, what, right. what seeing, uh, Rinto, uh, oh, to- uh, just generally speaking i feel like the the entire plot line of like Navarian self-flagellation is something that's interesting. That's something that should get some further discussion, right? Like, why did the Vulcan, like, entire race decide to punish themselves like this, right? Did they really believe it? Why did they believe it? Like, why couldn't they see some sort of, like, introspective on it? I don't know how... I can't speak for everybody like this, but uh, this just reminded me of, like, I had a roommate who was German, and he had said that, you know, after after World War II, the way their history books work and the way their culture and stuff works is they still today carry a lot of guilt for their yeah. participation in, in World War II. And so even if my roommate had nothing to do with that, wasn't involved with it, his parents didn't even emigrate to Germany until after the war, their culture has been oriented in a way that is very much never again. That's uh, that's a good example. And I think that that's something that, you know, is laudable, really, because that helps prevent it from happening again. But Navarians, Vulcans, Romulans live way too long for that. They haven't had a generation yet. It's only been 120 years. No, but they've also given birth to a bunch of people since then. And they, again, the whole 
educational cultural system has to reinforce this concept of never again for us to be 120 years later and these vulcans who are now just entering middle age are going man we've lived our whole lives under this idea that this has happened and i'm the vulcans who attested with um with with michael during that trial the thing trial, yeah. none of them were over a hundred years old we don't know that they i guarantee be. it vulcan don't crack Maybe the president, <laughs> uh, i knew it i knew it i could feel it coming vulcan don't, crack. vulcan don't crack the president might have been over a hundred but i i very strongly feel like the other three people in that tribunal were not over a hundred or had spent most of their childhood maybe even their adolescence and up to now dealing with this maybe. concepts I, either way i question. find the whole go ahead Okay, I, I, about about this, and this is not really so much about the season, but after 900 plus years, now did, did they establish how long ago the Romulans moved in on the Vulcan? Was that, what, 800 years ago, or was it 900? It was, I don't think they gave a firm date. They okay. didn't give a firm date, but we know that Spock's unification efforts probably intersected with Picard-ish, because the Romulans are sort of a diaspora there mm -hmm. um it, it probably took you know between the 25th and 26th centuries for unification to nail down all of the factors and then for a mass emigration of the diaspora back to romulan okay so here's the question that i've that i've got about that let's just say that the romulan started started moving back into uh, vulcan what 600 years from discovery season three okay we're good to 600 well they started as one race then you had some vulcans leave and became romulans now you have the romulans come back and you add 600 years on top of that would it be fair to say that there's you still have a distinction of romulans and vulcans or wouldn't you yes. have more mixed race and is that what they're calling the uh, like mm, your navarian vulcans 600 years, 600 years is, is three, is three generations for, for Romulans and Vulcans. So like you could have a Romulan alive today. Who's like my great, great grandfather helped in the, the exodus to Navarre. Um, mm. You know, 600 years for us is like closer to 10 generations. Yeah. Uh, given our average life cycle today. But um, I, I think that that's an interesting way to look at it i just thought there would have been less of a d d distinction still like they're still talking romulans they vulcans they could be so yeah i was just, here's just an, curious side here's, here's a here's a point to throw out there as well okay the romulans started off as a people who got kicked off vulcan mm -hmm. so they had their own little diaspora crisis early in their own cultural history they found a home in the you know on romulus and the associated empire states that they set up there and then boom their son goes nova and they're a diaspora again and they spend a century or two as a diaspora during this reunification, political, bureaucratic negotiation. They had to rename the planet in order to do that. But the Romulans have a history of knowing how to deal when shit hits the fan. The Vulcans, on the other hand, by the time of the burn, they've spent 800 years as part of the Federation, you know, actually a thousand years as part of the Federation. 
they've become complacent, decadent. They've been, they've had a home world. It's fine. A Romulan mining ship didn't destroy Vulcan in this timeline. Mm-hmm. So, so the diaspora claim the, the Romulans are like, we just found a home. We definitely want to be involved in politics. And the decadent Vulcans here are going, eh, we can handle ourselves because they don't remember what it was like. It's not in their living memory, what it was like to be right. uh, there though a pre-federation vulcan and we saw that in enterprise they were very tribalistic and they hated the people in vulcan's forge and telepathy bad and 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 yeah so it's 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 it buttresses um renzo's like statement of like it's weird that the vulcans don't want to be a part of it but the romulans do and i'm trying to say yeah well the romulans just found a home and of course they want to still be a part of this political body and the vulcans are saying i don't want to fit in i I like it i think it's interesting i want more of it i do too i just i'm just trying to back up that that sentiment that you expressed earlier isn't that uh, just something that the romulans wanted to stay in the federation they want to get back in but it's the vulcans that they have to to deal with not wanting to get back in that's a hell of a turn so think of it this way right both of them had empires right the vulcan conquered planets they fought against the andorians they had multiple worlds they had multiple colonies Mm -hmm. so they had a interstellar uh state right yes the romulans were much more successful the romulans conquered a huge chunk of the alpha or the beta quadrant right yeah as a result yeah and as a result they were considered a major power the Vulcans were constrained because they joined the Federation, so they were kind of small, kind of more compact, right? But they had billions and billions of people, right? Mm-hmm. Let's just say that the upheaval of the the supernova that blows up Romulus it causes billions of deaths, right? Not necessarily the blast itself, because billions died from that, sure, but like the starvations, the famines, the conflicts, the, all that. It's still going to be an outnumbering situation for the for the Vulcans when the Romulans start showing up at the doorstep they're going to be outnumbered. There's no way that you can convince me that the Vulcans outnumbered the Romulans when the Romulans are running a massive interstellar empire. Like, it just doesn't make any sense to me, right? I, I think you're right. And uh, The Last Best Hope goes into that. It, it talks about, like, how the Federation was called in to help move Romulans from the core areas to outer areas outside the blast zone. And so they spend two or three years going off of this data saying the blast zone ends here. So start removing people over here. And as they're doing that, they're, they, you know, Picard is showing up with hundreds or thousands of Romulans in tow who are being relocated, their families, their people, their farmers. These are people who did not want to leave their homes. They didn't care if the sun was going to blow up the planet. And Picard had diplomatically spoken to their leaders and convinced these people, okay, it's time to go. We're going to get you new places here. He was convinced that the destination for these people, they were going to have prefab housing and all kinds of stuff was going to be waiting for them. And more often than not, they show up and the leaders, the Romulan leaders of the destination planet are like, yeah, the tent city over there, just, just drop them off. We'll take care of them after that. And there's no food stores. There's no prefab housing. And the people on the ships are going, you're going to drop us off here we don't want to go we want asylum we want yeah, federation this is, another asylum. Chernobyl. this is another chernobyl analogy right like when the soviets had to evacuate parts of the ukraine because of the blast from chernobyl they were putting them into tent housing in outside of kiev right, right. like 
they they were told they were being moved to new homes and everything not none of that existed right right and they were told that they'd be able to go home in three weeks they still have not gone home yeah. so right empires yeah. of lies are just bad for the people yeah so it, it, there's just there is a, a weaving of this plot line where the romulans may have actually begun uh, the diplomatic relations with the Federation through these asylum claims because of the supernova. Then the supernova hits and it's revealed that the Romulan government heavily censored everything that was going on up until that event. So yeah, I would be like, man, our people have been secretive and, and, and crazy for, you know, a long time and I don't want to be this way anymore. And but we're Dag, not going to be this way. But Dag, where are the Remans, man? What are they doing? Yeah, they just got shafted. There's Um, not even so much as a mention about, I mean, come on. Yeah. I I get it. I get what you guys are saying. The whole just absence of the, of the Remans all throughout Picard. The Remans had their chance and they threw their weight behind Shinzon. Well, but that didn't mean that they all went extinct. So between the supernova and nemesis, you're saying that they got wiped out by the Romulans? No, I honestly, I would just be like, you know, every Riemann ever was just on the scimitar. So by destroying the scimitar, they committed genocide. (laughs) (laughs) It's Data's fault. Data did it. (laughs) Honestly, I don't, I, I I don't know. And I, I do feel for them, but also they just haven't been mentioned. So we don't know. And I'm okay with the ambiguity until they nail it down. Okay, so let's let's try and get back on track. For anyone that might still be listening, for the two people that may still be listening, so I asked about the uh, SB19 data, and then we're talking about remits. I, you know, this is just you 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 connect one thread. It again, it's my fault. Like I've messed up twice today. I'm okay. You you connect one thread, and then another to that, Uh, and then another to explain that one, and then before you know it, your breadcrumb trail shoot the shit. Yeah, 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 it is. is. But it also means that we don't really have any really super glaring holes with season three, like we maybe thought we were going to have. Like, I think Book as Space Druid, that worked well for me. And I thought it was a really cool tie up that that Book went from, I'm going to summon a plant to give you an aloe for that little phaser burn that you have to, hey, I can speak to your spores and we can jump the ship. Yeah, I didn't see that coming as a result of that. And I should have because it's actually really fucking obvious. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) One of the things that I'm a little mad at myself about is um and i'm going to get a little contemporary political here but is the analogy of trans visibility in gray gray was invisible and adira could see gray because you know when you have your found family and, and and people who know you they can see you for who you are but adira was literally invisible and sorry gray was literally yeah. invisible and when he got to uh, Sukal's hollow habitat, uh, it interpreted him. It could see him. And he has a form. It's Vulcan. It's, it's not exactly great. It fits into the analogy of whatever they were using for the sci-fi explanation. But now everybody can see him, and he doesn't want to not be seen anymore. And I think that should be really cool. We should have a hollow emitter in, in the next season that allows gray to be recognized and and walk around autonomously i think be badass um that would be i didn't i i should have picked it up but i didn't pick up the very obvious metaphor for trans visibility see i i'm with you i saw some of the metaphor i didn't quite see that bit but i i I liked the exposure towards found families that adira was bringing to the show Mm -hmm. with 
Culber and Stamets. I thought that was amazing. I thought that the three of them make a beautiful like found family yeah uh, which is a reality for for many of us in america and in the world really but yeah it's just it's nice to be able to find a family that way and it's good to show it for me the biggest like takeaway from the season was i like how the writers approached redemption redemption arcs right right your joe over the course of three seasons has grown and changed the person they showed us that even space Hitler, which is essentially what we've nicknamed her many a time now, can grow, can develop, can become a better person, can, while I won't say re- be redeemed, can be given a second chance, right? A second mm-hmm. chance to redeem themselves. Right? right. But not everyone can be, which is why they show mm-hmm. us Osira getting a very finite end. Now, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with sometimes stories are gray. Sometimes there are shades of gray. But sometimes they are just black and white. Yeah. I like yes. having that. That was another arc that I was going to mention was with Giorgio, but hers was kind of not so much a season three arc as a trilogy arc. If we're, if we're going to go ahead and call these first three seasons, the the back to the future of discovery. Um, But I will say that even though her arc felt like it was it was that, that trilogy that at the start of season three, she was still like the same person that she was the, the first two. But in season three, she really started making that that turnaround. And yeah, she did some self-sacrificial stuff in season two. She put her life on the line for others in two. I don't think the Emperor Giorgio would have ever done that. Okay. Yep. She she'd yep. shown growth before three, I think. But, oh, yeah. We're right. Yeah, I didn't mean to to imply that yeah. there was no growth uh, before season three. It's she it's just out, she reached out to Michael to help her with Spock while under the the purview of Section Thirty One that just wanted to cut his brain open and learn what he knew about the future. Oh, you mean Spock's brain? We were going to have a prequel to <sighs> Spock's if brain. They had waited. See, and maybe that's why those people kidnapped his brain. <laughs> Because the first attempt didn't work. Okay, we shall not talk about Spock's brain. <laughs> Seriously, though, I mean, I like the fact that they they showed us that you can have a redemption short story for a bad character for a bad person. Cool, yes. we can have an Anakin Skywalker becomes Darth Vader becomes Anakin Skywalker, and you can do that, right? Yeah. But you can also have now they just gotta fucking die like Azula, right? Like Azula doesn't get a redemption in the show. Of no Avatar, right? Mm-hmm. Nor do I think she needed one. I think that she was perfectly content. The same with Ozai as just being a bad person and they just got to be taken down. Mm-hmm. Cool. I'm down with both of those stories. I like the fact that you're showing nuance and doing both in the same season. I think that's pretty good. You know, you know what you would like? And I'm willing to bet money that one of the two of you has heard of this or probably read it. But there was actually, I think it might have been a novel or a comic, one of the two, where... Um, uh, Vader did survive the events of uh, Death Star 2. Oh, yeah. So you actually had Anakin Skywalker to Darth Vader to Anakin Skywalker. That did happen. And he's and, in a white suit. Yeah, he was in a, uh, in a white suit. And now you're dealing with these implications of how, how do you handle this person that has had, that has done all these things in the past? And how do you deal with, with that redemption? But there's still all this baggage that that came behind it. Um, and I don't know where that whole thing went. Dag, was it a, a book? Was it like an Elseworlds novel kind of thing? I actually, I didn't actually, it's a comic book. 
Oh, it's a I comic. Okay. I did not. I did not read it, but I did see those those scenes of like him showing up at like Rebel headquarters or, or not Rebel anymore, but um, New Republic. Yeah, New Republic headquarters in an all white suit that actually helped with his pain and and did all the things that Palpatine had tried to provoke. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's interesting, you know, and and maybe today's analogy would have been that instead of Anakin getting a shiny new nice new suit, he should have been he should have stood trial for, you know, his participation in Order sixty six. Uh, if anything, yeah, he should yep. have been impeached on that if, if nothing else. And that was the only, that was the other thing I actually wanted to bring up. So my two points that I wanted to bring up during this whole retrospective were going to be, I like the fact that they showed two different kinds of storylines for villains. Um, And two, I really liked the fact that uh, they, the, the writers were willing to play with their expectations in the sense that we see admirals on Star Trek and be like, Oh, how is this guy going to fuck up? Oh, what is this guy going to do? That's so criminal. Oh, what is this guy going to do? How is this guy going to betray some idea with the Federation? What is, what is it with Star ways. Trek and evil admirals? Oh. It's true. But Vance, on the other hand, where many of us are watching and we, you can look at our previous episodes to see this. We are like, Oh, I just don't trust Vance. Oh, I think he's got something wrong. I think the Federation might be corrupt here. The entire time we're asking these questions. Good. They got us asking good questions. And then they gave us the answer that, you know, it's probably the trekkiest answer of all. no, He's just a good dude. He called Osira on her bullshit. He maintained the ideals of the Federation. He accepted mm-hmm. that there would be costs and there would be losses and some people would die. He was a realist about it, but he held true to like the idea that, you know what, lady, you got to go on trial. It'll be fair. It'll be just, but you got to go on trial. And that's, I thought that was the I wrong was place. Crazy. Yeah, I, I just thought that was the wrong place. I said it when we were talking about that episode. Did he have to go there right then? I don't think so. I that is something that could have maybe come later, but I think he just he tried to bite off more than he could chew by throwing that in. I thought I thought doing that with a superior power that's trying to make peace with you, why would you do that? I, I just I think he he just fucked the whole thing right there, the uh, the armistice proposal. And you're right, I spent a good part of the uh, you know good part of the season waiting for bands to turn shady or be that villain or whatever you know the typical star trek yeah animal. and i just, i didn't have that trust because star trek has kind of established that with us so i was Pure pleasantly threat. surprised yeah. right i was very surprised to find out that from start to end that he was just he was a good guy he's just a guy that's basically in command of a of a fleet that is nothing like it was i mean how many did, did, did anyone glean how many starfleet ships in total were left it looked like they were all mostly in that base and i thought well, maybe i counted eight or nine we we did get a reference to there being multiple bases so we know that so there might be you know uh, a couple hundred at max yes I because better, <clears throat> right right i'm not right. going to disagree with that assessment yeah. either what were the odds ultra of, optimistic here yeah yeah because they just to have survived the burn their warp core it's not that if you were at warp it was if your warp core was turned on right so there would not be many ships that were sitting so idle that they're you know that the engine was turned off right i'm i'm not disagreeing with any of that i just want to comment and say i love how the exchange between you two has just 
tweaked the chemistry in my brain mm-hmm. to uh, I'm 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 making another speculative head cannon about Admiral Vance here. Like <laughs> in in that scene where where I thought Vance overreached, I was thinking about like what Renzo had said about real politic and about how um, Vance asking this per this leader of another organization who is coming with terms that already show considerable concession to say, all right, now you need to stand trial. I thought that was way overreaching. And I was a little upset with Vance for like throwing this opportunity to mm-hmm. end bloodshed between, between the chain and the Federation. Yep. Um, but the way that you guys were talking about it made me be like, what if that was a play? What if Vance told her she needed to stand trial to see what her reaction would be? And if she had immediately said, yeah, that's fine, he would understand more that maybe she's not exactly as bad. Because in her mind, her reaction was, no, you guys are going to find me guilty. I'm fucked. And so she bailed. Well, and- so there's a certain uh, uh, slogan that's used in politics or especially mm-hmm. in protest politics these days. No justice, no peace. Right. Mm-hmm. If there's not going to be justice for the crimes of Osira, there should be no peace between the Emerald Chain and the Federation, right? So well, I'm not. Well, and now that's being aimed at uh, the U.S. politics right now between the outgoing and incoming administrations. If there's not going to be no accountability, what uh, accountability matters? What right? use? Like, is... I'm happy to have that argument with you, Big J, anytime, because this is one I feel like legitimately... <laughs> we don't want to edit a 14-hour podcast. Yeah, that's exactly what would happen. Right? Like, this You're is right. Nuremberg to me. After, after Nuremberg, you didn't let the Nazis walk off without a trial. They had to go on trial. And the right. Nuremberg trials were better than the ones that we did in Tokyo. And the Tokyo trials were better than the ones that we did right in Italy, right? right. So there are grades to it. Nuremberg was the best because it was the most comprehensive. They got lawyers. They did the whole thing. And they still mostly found them guilty. So... Okay, right. I get what you're saying. Yes, the the trial has to happen. Nuremberg had to happen. I'm I'm not saying just let everyone get off the hook. The problem that I have is that okay. So now Osira was um, representing the bureaucratic back end bean counters of uh, the the Emerald okay. Chain. Okay, and so Vance was kind of that, that counterpart. He is the one that's the, that initial face of the Federation. However, they still have a president. There's still a governing body there. So you have these two representatives um, speaking. It, it, would, it would be if the U.S. ambassador and the Russian ambassador, and let's I keep saying Russia, but there's really, is there still Russia? Yes. Okay. Um, Say they, they get together and the U S ambassador, you know, Russia, let's just pretend they're the superior power and their ambassador comes to us with all these overtures of peace. But then the, after it all looks good, it's all sounding good. Then the U S ambassador walks in and is like, okay, this all looks good and sounds great. But by the way, you're going to have to stand trial for the things that you did. That was the wrong place. <clears throat> that could have come at any point except right then and there. I, that was just, to me, that was a, a bad call for, for Vance to take it upon himself. Even if it was at the direction of the Federation president, which I'm not sure if it was or if this was something that Vance did on his own, that was the wrong place and time to do it. And if he was doing that as just a measure of testing uh, Osiris motivations. I think that that was, that was 
too big of a thing to just throw out as a, I'm going to test you on this because that to me, that kind of comes off as pretty antagonistic. You're taking so more of a chance of pissing her off just by suggesting it. I don't see any reason to trust her, right? Like Osira has sure. done nothing from his perspective to engender trust, right? She mm-hmm. presented this peace deal that seems very good. Cool. So if you're earnest and want to really establish some sort of like long lasting unity, then justice must happen. And justice requires you to go on trial. And that's basically what he told her, right? It'll be a fair trial. If you think you can yeah. win a fair trial, this will be as fair as it gets, right? Right. But if that should have been win a fair trial. You should go to jail. That should have been discussed by the bureaucrats on each end. And neither this one of them the were that. This is the bureaucrats. You don't want scenes of the Congress is talking to each other via subspace. So, I mean, yeah, I, I, you know, I get that. But, but I, I didn't walk into this conversation with with Osiris and Vance thinking that that they were the, the the bureaucrat part. I knew that was going to be like behind the scenes. I, well, I her was title's minister. Her title is minister. And she makes a point of that during that scene. Right, like right. This is Minister Osira and this is Admiral Vance. You've got a military person who's also technically a diplomat, he is Starfleet and silly, and yeah. you've got that, right? So you've got people from slightly different perspectives still dealing with this, even though as a minister, she was essentially just a war master, right? Yeah. So I mean, Picard, Picard was a Starfleet captain, so several degree, pay grades below a fleet admiral um, who was termed the arbiter of succession for the Klingon Empire. Like it's I, I think trusting our leaders with these high diplomatic roles that determine the fates of nation states is well established in Star Trek. And if we're going to give Vance the benefit of the doubt as a as a five-star flag officer, he should be more than equipped than Picard even at, at being able to handle this kind of stuff. And think of it this way, Big J, when an ambassador is at the United Nations and the ambassador is doing the voting, right? They vote on vetoing resolutions and such. They do not get to phone home every time to find out. They have to go with what they believe they're doing for their government, right? So there have been right. times in sealed sessions right, where a Russian ambassador is banging on the table with his shoe about the Cuban Missile Crisis and the American guy has to represent this country. He doesn't get to phone a friend, he doesn't get to call home, which is pretty similar here. He's in intense negotiations with Osira. They can't wait for the translation, they're just negotiating now. This is his chance to push for what is right, what mm-hmm. is just, and he's gonna go with it. And I think Gag's right. I think he did probably do it more so as just like a test than actually expecting her to agree with it. But it might have just been just to buy himself time, right? Because he knew that there was conflict on the ship already by this point. They knew that there was conflict, that there was some sort of firefights going on. So if he's just distracting her and keeping her there, that's fine. Maybe maybe he thought that she would try and negotiate more on this. Maybe he didn't think she would end it immediately. But either way, I mean, we could go we could go full tilt West Wing here and be like, oh, Syrah, as a leader of a government would have to understand the concept of trials and appeals and and, you know, the argument from her government's perspective advocating for her for who's going to represent her on her case and who's going to prosecution. I mean, that whole thing could have been years of deciding when Osira goes to trial. And in that very moment, when Vance brings it up, she's like, fuck you. So it's like, like it's it's obvious in that yeah. moment. If it was a play, Osira had zero advocacy. Yeah, she that's knew, a very good point. She knew she was going to die. She knew that they were going to execute her. The chain didn't like her because she was murdering slaves and whatever mercantilism they have that has worked. 
um, it just isn't going to live up to the promise of the Federation as it once was, even if they they merged in a marriage to unify their governments. Osira That's a very good point, right? Like, had that's to a, know. That's something bureaucrats know, right? Like they know that they can draw things out. Negotiations take years, yeah. right? Serious things. This document that she brought was ready on the spot. It was just sign here, sign there. We're good, right? If she had wanted to draw this out thinking that she could, she would have. She knows how to play that game. Yeah. Like the so technically World War II is not over, right? The Russians and the Japanese have never signed a peace treaty after World War II over the cons, over over a bunch of little islands in the Pacific called the Kuril Islands. Hmm. They're still technically undecided. The Russians occupy them, the Japanese claim them. As a result, World War II is technically still on, guys. So oh. wow. yeah. it's like that uh that one island between uh, like Greenland and and another organization, they they the war is still on, but every year a boat comes over and kicks off the other one's wine bottle and leaves another bottle of their own wine. Yes, or, yes. or something like that. Uh, yeah. Their their native drink. It's it. I get. That it's more of a friendly kind of right. It's like, a conflict that has zero. There's zero reason to fight it anymore, but it's still considered legally ongoing because so, no formal documents I've, have been signed. My example is less one. friendly, right? Like the Russians and the Japanese still use this as a as attempted like a bargaining chip. Like, hey, let's do a peace deal or let's do a trade deal right. and maybe we'll sign peace on the side. Right. Right. And these are two significant countries trying to do this. Right. So I can totally see something like this getting drawn out. If she really wanted to proceed forward, that's probably how she would have addressed it. Nah, she wasn't there for it. She was just there to try and like, yeah, trick them. It was all a ploy. Like yeah. she's been shown if, to be deceitful. So if if Vance had any thought in the world that, and this is another part of that like diplomatic combat that that people have to wager on. Osira knew she was screwed from the second Vance brought it up. But if Vance had thought for a second that she could be considered innocent. He wouldn't have brought it up then. He would have signed that document on behalf of the Federation to br start bringing the Admiral chain in, like annex it. And then after all, all the document is formally signed, go, oh, by the way, you're under arrest. <laughs> it's just right there. <laughs> then by the way, the you're under war. arrest. But, that's but, immediate civil war, though. It's immediate civil war. And that's another play that Vance couldn't risk is is if we're going to sign a document in good faith, we're going to be upfront about our demands before we sign the document. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the Federation ideal that showed that shined through. Yeah. I, I really like that whole thing, right? Just the fact that Vance ended up being a good stand-up bro, willing to fight, yeah. willing to die for it. Cause right. His, his face was being sieged. Right. Right. So they were five, what they were, what, two minutes away from blowing up their primary shield generator. Yeah. 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 So that's that's good. That's I like the fact that they twisted our expectations and made Vance not the shady muckety muck so and so admiral from who knows where that does shady things. And they so. gave us a black and white villain that we could execute at the end. Yep, yep. No, yep. no shades of gray there. I, I I'm fine with not, that. Not all villains need shades of gray, right? Like Chang did not get shades of gray. Khan did not get shades of gray, right? right. Some of times you need it. So like Shinzon required some shades of gray. Shinzon, you understood much more so why he was the way he was. They gave us that. Right. Cool. But Not everyone gets it. Even as a, even as a, even with his shades of gray, the threat that he posed could not be withstood. Right. Yeah. The failure on weaponry was just way too nuts. Yeah. Uh, I thought Khan and the Kelvin timeline had a little bit of shades of gray. Nah. Yeah. That's why that movie was terrible. The Khan and the Kelvin timeline was crocodile tears all the way. 
What would you do for your family? It's like, Honestly, bitch, my, my family died trying to save a Romulan mining ship or something. You know, Into like, Darkness is my off. least favorite of the Kelvin <laughs> Universe movies. So. Okay, let, you let, know let, what let's... I would do with my family? I would play Sabotage and blow up a bunch of drone ships. That's what I do for my family. What do you do? <laughs> you put your family in torpedoes, you dumb head. <laughs> well, no, he did that to because um, he had to escape. That was like the only way to smuggle them out of the because he was thought out and made to right. design the ship and weapons from this. So that's why I thought he had a little bit of shades of gray because it's like he was made to do the thing and he wanted to save his people. So he had hey, to smuggle them out. And Admiral Marcus, another example of the evil Federation Admiral twisted right. or subverted by section 31. Yep. And here we yep. had section 31 standing side by side with mm. Admiral Vance toward <sighs> doing the right things. Right. I prefer yeah. times when Star Trek shows us, the organization of the Federation or Starfleet doing good things rather than showing us just their failings. I like seeing some failings, but don't show me just their failings. Show me their moral high points too. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to skew back into uh, our discovery season three retro. We talked about how the side characters need to get growth. We talked about the benefits of having uh, un unredeeming villains and redeeming villains. We talked about um, why, you know, Discovery gets more scrutiny now than it did than the other shows got and why Discovery doesn't get the benefit of the doubt now like a lot of other shows get. And, you know, it's the conflicts of... Uh, internet culture plus novelty that that gives discovery like the the magnifying glass that's focusing the sun to burn everything up um we talked about uh resolving the captaincy of discovery um do you guys want to talk about like where things will happen going forward are there any other moments no. that we missed here we talked about family we talked about found family we talked about transvisibility do we think that michael burnham's gonna remain captain what do you guys think of that in general i guess oh that's gonna get pretty awkward I, and pretty sticky when saru comes off of pto here's what i would like i would like Michael Burnham to remain captain, but I would, as captain, I would like Michael Burnham to rely on the senior staff to be able to get things done. So we don't always have the captain putting themselves in this life or death situation to do the task that will benefit everybody else as captain of a starship your place is on that bridge commanding your officers and if you can't do that if you always have to be the person who's putting yourself in danger you are disrupting your own chain of command threatening your own ship by doing so so uh this is where i need the focus to expand onto those side characters and give us an away team that is Jet, Tilly, and Owo. Um, you know, and, and Michael can be on the bridge and we can have those episodes where, you know, Picard is on, in the ready room the whole time and the action takes place on the planet or in the shuttlecraft or somewhere else. Um, that's just, that is the responsibility of being a captain. You don't get to have all the fun because every, the, the, the buck stops with you. So that's my hope uh, for Burnham as captain of Discovery now. I, I, I wonder 
I wonder if they're going to do a thing like they did um, once we got to Star Trek V, where uh, you just had you multiple had Kirk, captains on. Yeah, multiple captains. Kirk was captain. Uh, Spock, Spock was captain. Scotty. Scotty was a uh, captain. Um, so yeah, like four commanders. Yeah, right. right four Chekhov, commanders: Sulu, Uhura, McCoy. But here's where it's tricky, though. It's because Kirk was was always the superior officer to Spock, and Spock acknowledged that if there's anyone that should be in command of this ship during any kind of operation or battle, it should be Kirk. Um, in this situation with Michael and Saru, I feel like that's kind of swapped. Like M Michael is Spock and Saru is Kirk. So now you've got Spock as the captain, you know, you've got Michael as the captain and your person who was your superior officer coming back now is he still going to be a captain but who's going to be the sub subordinate to who kirk and spock were both captains uh when star trek five and six however kirk was in command and spock was the first officer with the, the rank of captain so is saru going to come back as a captain but be the first officer under michael that's the part that i hope not yeah, but I mean, what, but what are they going to, See, to do with that? I and I can't have this argument because I fundamentally saw Star Trek six happen in a very different way. Spock was the diplomatic attache who had brokered the peace talk. Kirk was captain of the Enterprise on that mission. But Spock took point in all diplomatic matters mm -hmm. and and we we get some kirk focused stuff you know the dinner and, mm -hmm. and things like that but fundamentally uh spock rented a taxi that was driven by kirk for the purpose of of this negotiation and as captain of the enterprise at the time he gets spock, kirk gets arrested spock is not the captain of the enterprise kirk gets arrested for being held accountable for the actions of the crew under his command Spock is thus the senior officer on board, also as a diplomatic attaché, who takes command of the Enterprise in a tense situation. Could Scotty have taken command of the Enterprise? Possibly, but he's not the best officer for that job. Spock is. So I didn't see Spock as the XO on the Enterprise in Star Trek VI at all. He was the diplomatic guy who had brokered the peace conference. But... He was the captain of the Enterprise uh, up until Star Trek two, 2285. Yeah. So th there, there's 10 years in between uh, the motion picture and Wrath of Khan. And I think it's more beta canon that, that says after the events of the motion picture, uh, Admiral Kirk commanded the Enterprise's quote-unquote captain for a five-year mission and then went back into the the admiralty sat behind a desk and then spock was promoted to captain the enterprise was made a, a training vessel so so you, it was definitely a training vessel he literally was doing a kobayashi maru simulation on the bridge at the beginning of two right and and 
Spock says, you know, uh, in this particular role, I'm content to command Enterprise. But if we are to go into actual duty, it mm-hmm. is it is protocol that the senior officer on board take command. And we have the conversation about, you know, I have no ego to bruise. You know, mm-hmm. the Enterprise is yours. Um, but it's very clear that Spock acknowledges Kirk as a senior commander maybe a more experienced officer in some cases. Um, but I did not see Spock as the XO of Enterprise under uh, Undiscovered Country. So maybe that was just like a tilt shift for me. Uh, I mean, I would feel like he was probably serving in the role of XO. Like any paperwork that was sent up for an XO would have gone to him. But on paper, I don't really think so. And that's I don't think just, it really matters. That's just personnel efficiency. Like Sure. He's, he's also the he's, one who's at the science desk and he's using the scanning thing in right. Star Trek Six. He, he's there and he's he's fulfilling the role because he's not just gonna sit in his quarters and be a diplomat all day. He and and there's a really good headcanon that that particular crew was diplomatic special ops in the first place, and that's why you ended up with three captains and four commanders um on a ship like that, because they all were ridiculously experienced in matters mm-hmm. of this particular kind of diplomacy. I just here, here's my thought. They have put themselves in a very awkward position here because if Saru ends up back on Discovery, now you've got who's going to be in command, who's going to concede to who. Uh, part of me wants to say that it should continue being Michael as a captain because if they were to switch again and they were both captain, but Saru was in command, we've seen that... I feel like we've seen that switch too often. Like they can't keep switching back and forth. It can't keep being that Saru ends up in the chair, not, not Michael, but I, I have an idea for you, Jay. Okay. And, and eat my idea. See if, see if it tastes good. Okay. Um, <laughs> Saru, Saru's taking a sabbatical from Starfleet to get Sukal recultured into Kelpian ways. Yeah. Right. And so Saru's taking the sabbatical and he he's never known a Kelpia or a Kelpia. What's the name of the planet that they're from? I don't know. Kaminar. He's never known a Kaminar as a Federation planet. So he has 900 years of catch up learning to do firsthand just with his own people. And did they make peace with the Ba'ul? What's going on here? Mm -hmm. And if 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 season four gives us the time skip, I'm hoping for Mm -hmm. Saru may still be on paper as as a captain rank in Starfleet, but I'm hoping he's a diplomatic attaché. He's an ambassador, and his role coming back to Discovery is going to be advocating on behalf of the Federation as a member of a Federation world, Kaminar. He's going to be the Federation ambassador to Kaminar. Kaminar, and he's going to be helping solve those diplomatic West Wing issues with these other worlds that have moved away or are now seeking membership with the Federation. So okay. she gets to be the captain. He gets to be the ambassador. He gets to go on more away missions than she does. If she gets into a jam, he can reluctantly step into a leadership role because he's familiar with that. But on paper, He's an ambassador. Okay, so here's That's what I'll tell what you. That's what I would hope for. Here's what I'll tell you. I can eat that idea. It just needs some seasoning. Cool. Okay. I seasoning. I, yes, yes. It's like, okay, I could take that. However, it, it really needs to be kind of kind of souped up and, and cleaned up to make it to make it feel 
like that was a natural progression instead of the last thing we need. We don't need, right. The, we do not need another, uh, uh, competition for the center of discovery. We've already done that. Yep. So, but that, that time is coming. They, they can only delay that confrontation for so long. So either it's going to be something like what you said, Dag, or they're going to put him on a different ship. But to me, that still kind of feels like you're not, you're, you're not addressing the, the issue that, okay. So now that you're back from vacation, we're going to transfer you to another ship to, to captain because we want Michael to be the captain of discovery. Or do you put Saru back in the chair on discovery? And then Michael is the captain of the Voyager J or, or whatever. I, I just think that it's going to be messy. I like your idea. It needs a little seasoning, but they just, they put themselves in this position where if I'm a writer on the show, didn't they already start um, production on, on season yeah, four? Season, season four is halfway through. But, uh, okay. So I would be very interested to see what the writers came up with when they were done with that storyline production season three and what they came up with in, in season four, because it's one of those things that I see sometimes in, in movies or TV series where it makes perfect sense to get from point A to point B in whatever way you did it. But then when you have to get from point C to point D, you're screwed because where you ended up at point B just totally messes up your, your next thing. Um, it was kind of like, you, you know, it's, so I'm totally think? down with your idea. That's actually kind of what I was thinking. I wasn't thinking this so much as a diplomatic attache, though. I like that idea more than my own. So I think I'll stick with that one. I think that works really well. Bring him on as sort of like how Luxwana Troy was the uh, Federation ambassador to Beta Zoe or Beta Z and same thing as like Sarek or Spock in his later years. Right. Like that works. That hits. That works for me. Um, but what I really would like to see is Michael Bird growing the fuck up, right? Like, stop running off and doing your own thing. Stop finding yourself on another mission. You're a captain now. Stay on your bridge, right? Like, you've got a job to do. You've got people to lead. You've got people who will follow you. Trust mm -hmm. them. Use your crew, right? Stop running off on, on crazy missions. Picard did that, like, a handful of times in seven years. We don't... I. We we've had too much of the Michael Burnham show right. in that sense. And and to that point, the worst thing that can happen in season four is, well, Michael Burnham's a captain. She shouldn't really she should be doing what what Beyond Trek told them to do. So what we're going to do instead is we're going to kidnap her every episode. <laughs> <laughs> no. So what I think would be the worst way to take your idea and like make me miserable would be Saru is as a diplomatic attache. Michael finds out about some threat to something vance tells her not to go she takes the nada with the book and they go together anyways leaving saru on the bridge with tilly and now tilly's exo so she should be in command but saru is a captain and she wants to give that kind of uh, shit I would that shit it. needs to stop yeah yeah it's so dumb yeah it's just too much interpersonal conflict i don't like so much interpersonal Man. conflict in my starship cruise if, if if that had happened i mean honestly this this will never happen but if that had if that conversation were to happen as as Saru, I would just be like, computer, activate emergency command hologram, and it's Anson Mount as Pike. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, honestly, done. Just let anything that happen. would be yeah. better than that sort of like Tilly being like, no, Saru, you should be captain. You were captain before me. I'm just oh the, I'm just God. an ensign. Yeah, no, I, lieutenant now. I don't I don't need I don't need the, the if there's even uh, so much as a discussion about that, I'm going to <laughs> shoot myself in the face. 
Yeah, no, I don't need the the person holding the door and two people yelling at each other. No, you first. No, you first. No, you first. No, you first. I need I need I need the door to be broken down and the captain to just be standing there going, you two, you're going on an away mission. I'll see you later. And then we just follow the away mission. That's what I need. Well, I I get what you're saying, but the the whole thing with Michael staying on the ship, I she's come from the cowboy era of Starfleet. So think of replace her with Kirk. Do you think that Kirk would be a stay on your bridge Picard type, or would he still be doing what he was used to going down on the planet with Spock and McCoy leading the away missions? Because that's what they did in that era of, of Starfleet. And that's the era she comes from. Well, if she wants to live in this new era, it would be more Federation and Starfleet of her to figure that part out of, of what kind of captain she needs to be right. rather than what kind of captain was allowed a thousand years ago. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. She needs to adjust some. She can't just be this rebel, right? Like that, that storyline, yeah. I think we have seen it. It has borne fruit. We have, she has grown as a person. She's had years and let's, let's see her do some actual like adulting. That right? horse has bruises from the kicking. In the beatings. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that's something that absolutely should happen. I'd love to see Saru come back as a diplomat. I'd love for them to spin off into Star Trek West, West Wing featuring Saru. Uh, <laughs> that would be kind of cool. Um, well, remember that episode of Lower Decks where they were negotiating with that planet that didn't want to evacuate their moon or whatever? That episode was great. <laughs> they handled that really well. Yeah, they did. <laughs> Boimler ended up naked on a shuttle somehow. But anyway, <laughs> um yeah so this was a a very scatterbrained retro of discovery season three um <laughs> hell yeah i think i think my i think i i think i'm ready for final thoughts if you are yep yep um renzo so i think that season three of discovery is the best season of discovery so far i feel like it has done a lot to progress the show it has done a lot to progress the franchise I generally feel like it has shown maturity in the writing. Um, I feel like they could do with a little bit more um, thought about where things will end up when they start them, because I feel like some of these endings may have been uh, a little bit last minute, kind of that mystery box idea of the Abrams, mm -hmm. right? Um, if I'm wrong in that one, fantastic. Then just show us a bit more as you go. But overall, I think this is the best season of Discovery. Um, and I think it's actually a pretty good season overall. I think it was just a good season of TV. I, I agree. So my my final thought, if I if I sit and look at it like a, a trilogy, more the, more of Back to the Future and not any of the Star Wars trilogies. That was I like the Back to the Future analogy a lot more. I thought that that three that this season was a good wrap up of that trilogy and for me it, it feels like i can i can rationalize things with the with season three better when i think about when i think about it like that i'm still disappointed that we just got a smattering of, of some attention put on characters that were not named saru stamets michael tilly um I, I, but I, I do think that 
that would that was just not the focus of this trilogy and of the wrap up to it. As long as we get into if they're going to treat seasons four, five, and six like another trilogy, as long as they start putting some some focus, go back to classic Trek a little bit. Let's know what Reese's first name is and Bryce's first name and, you know, see them do an episode with them to a little side plot, you know, B thing, start fleshing these people out a little bit. I, in season three, I can tell you that I think that I have had my fill of the same four primary characters and, and their interplays together. Okay, we've we've been there, we've done it. And so my my final thought there is I understand that this season also could not really put much focus on them, but now that we're past that, let's let's see some more out of these uh, other supporting characters instead yeah. of being consistent background scenery. Yeah. Yeah. I think my final my final thought, I would agree with Renzo in the sense that season three was probably the best of discovery so far. I agree with Jay that the side characters that we have gotten to know so little about, but still kind of adore. Oh, whoa. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> they, they need their, they need their time to shine and they need to catch up to the development that the, the top four have received. Um, and then I guess uh, this show, the season as, as good as it was, it did miss some opportunities to do a lot better world building. Sure, we got to know a little bit about Trill, a little bit about Vulcan, a little bit about Earth, mm -hmm. but you know, there's a hundred something worlds in the Federation. And why did the Andorians suddenly align with the Emerald Chain? What's going on there? And so just in season four, give me, give me some world building. If you're going to have to slam six different plots into a season, give me some away missions that take some people to Andor and some people to Trill and some people to other worlds of the Federation. Let us give us a little bit of nostalgia in going, okay, first we need a level set on where our friendly neighborhood Denobulans are. Oh. And then, and then, Denobulans. and then build out the world from there. Denobulans. No, no, I'm going to dag, call, call John, call John Billingsley. Renzo, Renzo is still mispronouncing it. And we might, I said, I said Denobulin and he was like Denobulin, but we don't need to call John. We can just go back to the timestamp in our previous interview. Where he <laughs> called me out. Denobulins just wanted to fuck their brains out, didn't they? Denobulins, Denobulins. Oh, Denobulins. I can understand why you're getting in my track card now. Under the circumstance, we were talking about masturbation, so I forgive you. And I gave up He's my called both card. of us out on it. Yeah, thought, both of you I guys. Thought was, I thought I say Denobulins. He's, I thought he was telling me it was Denobulins. No. See, and I said Denobulin and and he no right. But we're also we're also pretty chatty on Twitter yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. So good, good. That's awesome. Um yeah, so there you have it, folks. This is our, like I said, scatterbrained retro on Discovery Season 3. No words yet on when Discovery Season 4 is coming out or Picard Season 2, which we know is should be starting production next month. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg is set to appear 
uh, in Picard season two, Star Trek Prodigy coming out, uh, I think this summer, 2021 with- Lower Decks Mul- is also in production too. Right. Okay, uh, Kate, Mul- Kate Mulgrew is reprising the role of Catherine Janeway in uh, Prodigy, which will be cool. Don't know how many episodes for. Lower Decks season two, uh, unnamed section 31 show in in probably, probably what does they call it? Uh, Hollywood Hell or something like that. Yeah, uh, production hell, development, development hell. hell. Yeah, it's in, it's yeah. in development hell. Uh, hopefully, bringing back Michelle Yeoh. I need to see more. Um, what's his name? Kovic. Oh yeah. I would. Oh no! Strange New Worlds. How did I even totally forget about that? Strange New Worlds. Oh right. Um, with uh, the best number one of all time, Una. Mm-hmm. Um. So plenty of Trek to look forward to in the next couple of years. And Old major Trek. Right, yeah, the, the, the Trek Renaissance. Um, Feels like and, uh, we want to thank you, listeners and supporters, for being a part of Beyond Trek podcast. Jay, do you have uh, individuals to uh, to thank? Yes, I, I thought ahead and was was ready for you to say that. So here's where here's where you can find us online. It's patreon.com slash beyond trek. You can find us on Twitter and DAG is really running that and doing a spectacular job with the Twitter. So that's at Beyond Trek Pod, Facebook, you can find us under Beyond Trek Productions, and Instagram on Beyond Trek Podcast. And there are some, basically, if you Google Beyond Trek Podcast or Beyond Trek Productions, you're going to find us. Uh, so here are the special contributors that we have uh, to give thanks to. We've got Stephanie Baker, who's a Patreon and anchor contributor. We have S. Tam, who is a Patreon uh, donator. Anne Marie, also with Patreon. And Jim Cook, who is an anchor contributor. And uh, anchor is our audio version of our uh, podcast, our hosting platform there. And also like to thank John from Cygnus-X1.net. He does the screen caps that we use as our background images when we're doing our podcast and whenever we throw in an image from that episode, uh, if you watch the, uh, the YouTube version of our discussions. So thank you for, for doing that. And so that wraps up season three of Discovery. And... I don't know about you guys, but uh, we've done 24 weeks straight of reviews between Lower Decks and then Discovery. I am ready for a a little bit of a break. And for those of you that followed us and stayed along with us every week for the last six months, we, uh, we appreciate you doing that and joining us on that marathon. We've been we've been living for you guys, and I, I do want to thank our supporters. Thank you so much for being um, for contributing to Beyond Trek and you know helping with the production costs. Thank you to the listeners who keep us coming back week after week. Uh, if you're worried that Beyond Trek is just going to disappear off the radar until something new happens, don't. Uh, Dag is working on a couple of independent stuff uh, that you guys will be able to look forward to, and that'll be shared as well. I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to, to seeing that stuff. Yeah. We, we're in speaking of our own development, hell, there are some side projects and, and things like that, that we are hoping to 
to get back up off the ground. So you know, you won't only see us doing episode reviews. We've got some other stuff we're going to do. Somebody told me I needed to read audiobooks, so I'm just like, okay, I'll yes. just start reading books. <laughs> right? Yeah, just just start reading Star Trek books and and recording it. Yeah. Well, that that was we got the recommendation from some of our listeners and viewers uh, to do more live streams because Dag is such a good yeah, reader and storyteller. And, you know, we had a lot of fun with that. So you may see our episode reviews becoming more uh, doing live stream events, which is a lot of fun, but yeah, we will be back. We're not going to just drop off face of the planet. Um, so we will. Thanks Renzo and Jay for yeah. hanging out with me and um, audience come back for more beyond Trek stuff. We will catch you on the flip side. All right, guys. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening. We are Beyond Trek Podcast. Lower your inhibitions and surrender your years. We will add inspirational and hilarious Trek content to your day. Your attention will adapt to subscribe to us. Resistance is futile.